I swear. Wrestling Podcast. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the A-Squared Circle Wrestling Podcast. Andy Quilden, joined, as always, by Andrew Lee Simmons. Hello, everyone. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Andrew Roberts, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Cool. Uh, what's new? Um, I've had a bad back, haven't I? Oh, like, literally sofa-ridden, blad, sofa-ridden bad back. For anyone who doesn't know Andy, he's like the, the oldest young man ever, right? Yeah. You fall asleep well, on I mean, the sofa, don't you? Well, I, I'm very You've been doing that since about the age of 17. <laughs> I can nap anywhere. I'm world famous for that. I can sleep absolutely anywhere. Like the one, like normally the WWF pay-per-views used to be your famous ones, didn't mm. they? Were well, they late at night? I wonder if you're going to be able to stay awake through WrestleMania live in the arena. Mm. I don't know if I'm going yet. Well, of course you're going. <laughs> I'll go if you go. I'm going. Okay, I'll go. I don't mind putting money in uh, Vince McMahon's pocket so he can put it towards good use in ridding the world of me. That's it, yeah. You can invest <laughs> it. You can invest that money directly into NXT UK. Um, no, WWF is, a, is as a, like, you know, we talk about it a lot in this podcast. And like it's, they provide it's us with a lot of joy. And have done throughout the yeah, years. They, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and no, they I, don't now, well, but they have done. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, but I think, you know, but WrestleMania is different. Like, it's, it's a cultural event, isn't it? It's, uh, it's more than... Pro wrestling now, I think. Yeah. I like what I like about WrestleMania weekend is just all the wrestling fans just rocking around, being like, "Yeah, we're wrestling fans, and what?" Yeah. It's a cool Let's thing have this a week. Fight. No, not with <laughs> each other. Like, if anyone wants to challenge us, come on. But like, uh, but just it's a cool thing this weekend. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like any other weekend of the year where you can be like. I've realised we're staying in a um uh a Airbnb. Is it essentially an Airbnb? Well, there's no need to disclose where we're staying, is there? But we're not staying in a hotel where we can bump into the Legion of Doom and Lex Luger. Which is again, probably is it? it's probably the best for you because you're on the run from Hardcore Holly, aren't you? Oh, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. So, if anything, you've orchestrated this um to keep yourself safe. Yeah. So, uh, I'm looking forward to it though. I'm looking forward to going away for a week. Good. Mm. Um. So you've got a bad back. But it's better now, but last week, so basically I, I, um, I just had to, I was just walk, I was at training and I was just walking and all of a sudden I felt a little twinge and then it got progressively worse throughout the three hour class and then um, that was it. I was bed ridden, bed, uh, sofa ridden for about two days. I had, like Lindsay had to like, ro- uh, she had to like roll me out of bed, like, <laughs> like literally roll me out of bed. So, um, and then I could get on my feet. When I was on my feet, I was all right, but yeah. <laughs> You're funny, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm okay now. Um, got a busy day today. Got got three hours of personal training sessions at the Portsmouth School of Wrestling, so I'm going to have to be okay. I hope, okay. I hope your back makes it through. Yeah, me I too. Do. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how are you? Oh, I was just waiting for that, wasn't I? Yeah. That's what I feel like I spent half my way life waiting for, for you to ask me how I am for a change. And you had a poorly tummy. <laughs> <laughs> did, yeah. And what did I say? Uh, must be all the bananas you've been eating. Yeah. So yeah, I've been talking about my banana consumption. It maybe maybe there's a, some truth to that, but I don't think there is. Oh, I don't know. Did bananas help constipation or? <laughs> I, did don't. You, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, it was a good joke. So uh, it was a. Good, how's your tummy now? It's good. Yeah, I've not. Uh, yeah. It was a. Should we say it was about a 24-hour thing 
So I had a real bad stomach ache on Friday. Yeah. I was like a a miserable. This is like our health ailment podcast, isn't it? It's mm. like uh, Andy and Andy's medical woes as we approach middle life, middle age. But I'm very excited about today's topic. Um, yeah, but I've not finished t- talking. No, I know, but I can see you're excited. You're like a child. Yeah. Um, <coughs> a Hall of Famer. We've got a guest on this week. He's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, we have a guest on. Not a Can WWE d- Hall of Famer. Okay. Should we keep talking about my me being poor? Go on. Sorry, I'm excited. Um, so, yeah, I had crippling stomach pains on Friday. On Saturday. You had stomach ache, yep. On Saturday. Well, Friday night, actually, um, I did an Andy Boy Simmons. I curled up on the sofa. Yeah. Is diseased. Uh-huh. And then I woke up, and uh, I was like all... Oh, I was freezing cold, but sweaty. Yep. Which suggests that it was like a temporary thing, you mm-hmm. know, the fever and that, not just a case of eating too many bananas. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, but you're back, you're all right on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but um, but I didn't do any poos at all on Sunday, and not that anyone needs to know my. That's okay. <laughs> but yeah, but Saturday I was uh, I was pretty much parked up on the on the toilet. Oh yeah, <laughs> unlucky. Yeah, it was, it was very unlucky. Um, I haven't felt like that since I was a child at school. Um, I was in my maybe second year at school, so still in the. Young, or maybe it was year one. It was part. So you had reception year one, year yep. two, year three. So it'd be year one at school. Mrs. Saunders was still my teacher. And do you know what happened, Dan? Go on. Pooed myself. Did you? Yeah. What in class? Uh, I think it was in the playground. Okay. And do you remember you used to have to go to like medical rooms? Yeah. And they'd have some clean pants. And they'd for have it. some clean pants, right? Yeah. Only uh, I went to a medical room. Some clean pants. Told him, did you say you were year one? Year one, yeah. Okay. But I had a stomach bug, so it wasn't like I wasn't toilet trained. When yeah, I was yeah, yeah, yeah. Year one. If that's what you're thinking. No, 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 because I do have a similar story, but go on. Yeah, you were in a wrestling match. <laughs> <laughs> it was. <laughs> and unfortunately for you, they didn't have any spare pants. No. Um, but, like, no, so I went to, the, went to get some. Well, I went to see the, you know, the medical lady. Yep. Um, and. Uh, they had no boys' pants, so I had to wear a pair of pink frilly pants. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, but I was. They called my mum, and I was taken home. Yeah, but I had to go home in these pink frilly pants. <laughs> Just pink frilly pants. Or did you get no, I had my uh, trousers. As oh, well. okay. Because I only pooped my pants. I didn't put poo. Oh, what you had like tighty whities on? Did you? Well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Okay. Well, because normally, if you if you poo yourself, um, it falls down your leg. So oh, you're no. your inside I, of your like, trousers. No, I didn't start wearing boxer shorts until probably year seven. Oh, okay. Yeah. You were old enough. Yeah. Okay. I remember the sensation of wind up your leg. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Never went back. No. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had a tummy upset. Okay. Also this week, um, I must uh, must mention, I, I watched Derek for the first time this week, Andy. Yeah. And I when did I... Wa- I first watched Derek six years ago. And I was talking about it to you then. Okay. Like, memory. So, no, I wasn't like that. <laughs> I watched, I watched the uh, the first episode of Derek. Yes. And like many others, mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, he's just taking the piss. Because you can construe it like that if you watch it. Yeah. Not properly. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Um, and then like uh, yeah, I watched it this weekend. So uh, we'll uh, explain what Derek is, shall we? It's a Ricky Gervais sitcom. Sitcom. 
It's good drama. Drama to comedy. It's, it's funny. hard to explain, yeah. <coughs> it's, it's funny. It's, like funny it's, yeah. not, it's funny, but it's sad. Yeah. It's, it's pure Ricky Gervais. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like cringy. It's, you know, it's, it's the cross between The Office, obviously, because they're Ricky Gervais projects, but Office, extras. Do you know what I mean? There's that, like, that, that main thread, that main character who you pity... But you pity, well, I guess you pity Derek for different reasons. But you, you it's interesting though, isn't it? Just I don't know. Maybe pity's not the right word because that's no, that's considered because, quite patronising in these so, days. But so it's kind of it's designed to make you look at him and pity him, but you don't because you have all the other characters that know him and admire him. So you for having him. a pure heart. Yeah. So you admire him. So basically, it's such a clever piece of television in the sense that it um, it plays on all... It Just watch it. Yeah. <laughs> watch it, it, let us know what it, you it think. It plays on all the public's... You know, like, as a... As a you know, we all have... Um, there's, a, there's no two ways about it. We can all pretend to be... Um, as liberal and as, as free-minded as we like, right? Mm-hmm. But the reality of the situation is um, there's many times when we don't... Uh, when uh, when we make assumptions about people based upon the way they look or yep. the way they behave. Sure. And what this does is it, it, it preys on that. It preys on human's nature to make those assumptions. So you make assumptions about Derek when you first see him mm-hmm. and then, boom, it switches it on you, you know? And you yeah. see the human side. And also... And like, the, the drunk, there's a drunk. Character. Yeah, absolutely, a drunk. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And and you see and you see him and you you know that's the type of person who you'd avoid. You know, avoid, yeah. Yeah. But like Derek, and that's a that's a thing about Derek, the character of Derek, which I think is one of the most beautiful characters in any form of television ever. Because I'm quite passionate about. I can this. tell. Yeah. Right. It'd be nice to have this conversation six years ago. <laughs> when I when I I I think it's the first show I ever binge watched. Um. So. Um, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but Derek, he, he loves, he doesn't, he doesn't see, so like the drunk character, they, he sees Derek the good sits, in everyone. See, he, yeah, he sees yeah. the good in everyone, yeah. including the drunk character, and he takes him under his wing, and, and, and then everyone else kind of likes him in a weird way, the yeah. drunk character, even though he's, you know, not the most desirable character, but he sees a good in him, and yeah, it's just I don't know, it's just beautifully done. And uh, was it on? Uh, it's on Netflix. It's oh, on, on Netflix, Netflix now, is it? Yeah, okay. but I don't know how much longer it's going to be on there because when I was googling it, because I do this thing where I research stuff after. Yeah. Which I didn't actually research much on Derek. I was just like, I think that Hannah, mm-hmm. the woman. Yeah. I was like, I think she might be Ricky Drace's wife in Afterlife. And she is. She is. Yeah. Yes. Um. So, um, which also beautifully done, but um, but yeah, Derek. Um. Yeah, I cried and laughed, and s- I cried happy tears and cried sad tears. Uh-huh. I'm quite emotional now. I'm a dad, mm. so yeah. So there you go. I watched yeah. that. Talk about being a dad. Out. I was watching. I've only watched. I was up um, about halfway through the second episode. The disappearance of Madeline McCann. Oh, I watched. Uh, I've, I'm bored of that. That's actually what led me to watch Derek instead. Because <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, oh, oh god. We like, sit there. Me and my wife Lindsay were like, what? Nah, nah, the whole way through. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Like, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. That, yeah. that story, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. Like it. I'm, I'm not making opinions. I'm not. You know. But it. Yeah. But you, like you say, like as a, as a parent. Yeah. It. You. This stuff. It. 
it really resonates a lot more, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And like, I'll tell you what, like, do you, walk, you've been watching The Walking Dead. I'm not up to date at all, right? Okay. But you're you've almost up to date. You've met a few episodes of The Whisperers, right? Yeah. But the, have you have you seen the scene yet where uh, it's a few episodes ago where there's the baby? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That nearly killed me. Yeah. I'm not... <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. where the baby's crying and she puts the baby down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That wouldn't have affected me before. In the same way, I would have been like, oh, my God. But right, like, right. Yeah, so um, who's that lady everyone hates? She's like a... Uh, I think she was from The Apprentice, actually. Oh, Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins. That is exactly who I'm talking about. She was talking about the McCanns on something, and she was saying how every parent... This is her words, I think. I'm paraphrasing, probably, but she said... Every parent, <coughs> excuse me, when your child is born, is born with what they call the fear. So just the fear of something bad happening. Do you know what I mean? And why do those, why were those McCanns, why did they not have that instinct of the fear? Because I, I have the instinct of the fear about Poppy and Finley all the time. Yeah. You're not like OCD about it. I remember seeing a program about OCD a long time ago about like, oh, if I don't chop an onion this way, that means something bad's going to happen to my kids. That surprises me because that seems like something that you'd be into. Mm, no, not really because I know it's a deadly road to go down. Okay, because um, you are a bit weird on things, aren't you? Well, yeah, like I said, I didn't touch someone's keys. <laughs> I, mean? like, <laughs> I, was gonna, I was actually reaching for my pocket to see if I had some keys to throw at you. Yeah, but, no, yeah. don't need that. It's um, kryptonite. It is. So, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I, I w when Poppy was born... Instantly, the fear. I'm sure the same with you and Calvin. So, or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, no, I like. Oh, I, I don't know. I, I, what I, kind I, of father are you, actually? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I've turned soft. Like I swear. Like I've turned soft. I cry at everything. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I I I worry a lot. Mm. And yeah, it's a. Uh, you know we're not worried about what. Oh, this week's topic. Um. Well, we've not done a 30-week wrestling challenge yet. No, no, but I thought we could segue away from it now. Poor people thought, like, oh, they could go on about it. No, it's nice because we talk about... Yeah, no, I know, stuff. but I think enough is enough. Like, we've done it now. Uh, you're weird, mate. Okay. All right? That's fine. <laughs> At least you accept it. Zoe, do you think I'm weird? No, there you go. She said no. So I, I saw no words coming out of her mouth at all. Um, when you're gone, we'll probably have a discussion about how weird you are. Sure. Your little quirks. Mm -hmm. And now you're getting worried and getting insecure about that. Yeah, really. So, yeah, no problem. Um, so, okay, I apologise if you don't tune in to listen to real life talk, but unfortunately we are real people, so we have to... Uh, also, I want to know, the amount of people I say to, say to them, do you watch Walking Dead? The amount of them say no. I don't understand how it's... Like, I, I follow it. I'm two episodes down, but no one. I've got no one to talk to about it. So if anyone listens and wants to talk to me about The Walking Dead, all the way back to season one, <laughs> I'll happily, I will happily talk to you. That's what. That's one of the stories of my life. Oh, cheat. Have you seen that? No. You watch that. It'd be on ITV Hub. Yeah. So it's a three-part series. Mm -hmm. It was on four parts. Yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or maybe it was three parts. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I don't know. It finished on Thursday anyway, but it was. Uh, Every night on ITV last week, it was a four-part thing, I think, 9 p.m. every night, yeah. right? And I was like, this is me turning middle-aged because it's like one of those dramas that I said like to Haley, I was like, your mum would like this. Yeah, yeah. So but now you like it. Now, uh, yeah, yeah, I liked it because I liked the advert they kept playing. Like, Is it for a game show or something, cheat? No, no, it's a drama. 
Yeah, no, no, I know, but like cheating at what? She cheated. Uh, it's a girl who a girl called Rose cheated on her essay, uh, and okay. uh, the the lecturer Leah calls her up on it, and so begins a spiral of events. And do you know what the craziest thing is? Go on. You never actually find out if she cheated on the essay or not. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Which uh, that sounds. I think it's assumed that frustrating. she frustrating. It's yeah. assumed she has done. No, but like it's not really about cheating on an essay. Like it's a whole spiral of events. Okay. Um, I don't want to ruin it for anyone who's not seen it. Which dab really? Is but a, well, no, it's not because that's the first thing that um, is established. Is established. Yeah. Okay. And it's just the advert. If you watch the advert, it's very good. It'll get you, get you involved. Anyway. Yep. Enough of our uh, TV. We'd be good on Gogglebox, you know. <laughs> Maybe we would. Like. Yeah. We'd be sat there every week watching it. You would be asleep. <laughs> yeah. 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 And you'd but be on your phone. Wow. You're making this comment, but like I've I had my phone, I've got my phone in my hand. Does uh does Hayley give you a lot of grief about using your phone all the time? Yes. Because Lindsay gives me so much grief. Lindsay goes to me yesterday, she goes, uh she says to me, Andy, can I borrow your phone to go on Gumtree? I was like, No, because you always mess up all the settings and I was we were kind of joking about it. And then I checked something on my phone. She goes, you're always on your phone. I said, hold on. 60 seconds ago, you said to me, can I borrow your phone? And now you're telling me off using my... Do you know what I mean? Wow. You're just crossing your... Yeah, isn't it? Totally. She's, yeah, she's crossing... She's not using it. What's wrong with her phone? <laughs> oh, yeah. She's one of these who sort of says things like, um, oh, I don't even know where my phone is. I'm like, well, that's no good. Do you know what I mean? What what you got a phone for then? You two are terrible because you're the type of person that just leaves your phone in the car because... A watched phone never rings. Yeah, it's true. It doesn't. But what if it's an emergency? Yeah, I mean, I don't do that so much anymore, but I do do it sometimes. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, thirty week. Are you going to do the jingle again this week? Um. <coughs> yeah, I'll do it then. Okay. Right. Well, you um, can't really do a jingle unless you've got the microphone by your mouth. You okay. Just la la la. The whole. Uh, I'm practicing. I'm. I'm. Right, uh, how's it go? Andy and Andy. There's not really a tune to it, is there? Yeah. It's just kind of a, like a rhythm to some words. Shall I try and wrap it? Uh, no. Um, okay. Uh, a to the N to the D to the Y. It's Andy and Andy's 30 week wrestling challenge. I. <laughs> <laughs> We're just experimenting, aren't we? Every we, week. Uh, we made it rhyme. Yeah. So, And then we need a noise, a sound effect. What sound effect? Well, that was the sound now? effect. I. Oh, the I? Yeah. Okay. Because that made it rhyme with the Y. Yeah. And it was completely improvised. Okay, cool. So, uh, this week's is this week's wrestling challenge. Yep. Um, the, the the question is... Your sister's trying to call you. To take that. On air? I'll take it in a little bit. Oh, if I'm rightly, actually, didn't Lindsay call me up and you were like, let's do it on air, and then we ended up deleting it. Yeah, we deleted it because you were too scared to have the <laughs> conversation on air. Because you were being... You were getting, uh, you, uh, listeners, he was getting told off. It was something else. Did I, was I? Yeah, he's just under the thumb. Yeah. <coughs> but so, so are you. So it's okay. Right. 30-week um, right. wrestling challenge. Just go. The one you love to hate. Okay, so, so favourite bad guy. So, well, no, it's not favourite bad guy, is it? I think this is, uh, this goes almost into your, um, your, your thing of, you know, like, oh, I love him. He's such a good bad guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But like, maybe think of it more in terms of, um, in terms of, you, it's good fun booing that one. So I'll give you an example. Like, I I, I really used to enjoy booing Blondie Barrett at okay. the wrestling. Because it was all, he's very panto, like, all, like, just very good. Yeah. Um. um boo. So I'm trying to get in the mood. I think I'd really enjoy boo. booing Zach Gibson if I, I yeah. he's, do you know what I mean? He's that type of bad guy. 
that I can not get behind, but like I, I really, you know, like, you know, a bad guy who you, acts like a bad guy who gets upset when you boo him. Therefore, you get more enjoyment booing him. So it's not like you hate him for being a. It's not like that deep resentment. It's like I dislike you, and I really sure. get a kick out of the fact that you're not mm. enjoying being booed. Do you go in with uh, Zach Gibson? Zach Gibson, I think, yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I'm going. I'm trying to think in my head as well of some, um, you know, some nine like 90s wrestlers do you know who was good as well in, in TNA I've only seen it a few times go on EC3 right okay. and they're all chanting you can't wrestle and he's like actually I can wrestle you can't wrestle no I'm very good at wrestling actually and like okay. that shtick was kind of uh, was kind of cute and like I was, yeah, enjoy getting behind that Okay. when I say getting behind it getting on him you can't wrestle uh, so uh, <clears throat> so you were sat watching the telly going you can't joining in yeah, I was stood there, <laughs> arms open. Well, I remember when uh, when I did that PWG show. I was like, "Stand up if you hate Simmons." Yeah, that was one of my so favorite. I was stood up. <laughs> I'm sure you were. I was, on, I, was st- I was stood up on a chair. So was I. <laughs> <laughs> I was stood up in the ring, winning. I didn't win the match, but I was winning at the time. That was it. You were against Frankie Kazarian, then, yeah. weren't you? Mm. AEW's Frankie Kazarian. Yeah. Maybe he can get you a job. Maybe. Probably not. Um. <laughs> Little do you know. Um, there you go you heard it here first Andy Boy Simmons <laughs> signs with AEW um, so if you're listening to New Japan Pro Wrestling probably not worth talking to him because he's signed a not deal true, with not AEW, true at okay? all uh, okay right uh, uh, Bandy you love to hate um, Harvey Wimple well, so here's something I always called him Harvey Wimpleman it was Whippleman Whippleman right yeah 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 you really loved to hate him, did you? Well, I don't know. He was just someone I just disliked. <laughs> so it was just like, oh, get behind him. He's a bully. He used to bully Howard Funkel for years. I remember Kamala. Yeah, oh, and Kamala. He really bullied Kamala, I just he? bought his book, actually. Kamala? Yeah. Oh, yeah? I read an article on him, and I felt sorry and bought his book. Oh, well, to help support him? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, that's nice. So uh, I'll give you a book review in a few weeks' time. Okay. Well, maybe I should read um, it as well. What am I reading at the moment? Um, we should get Kamala on. I'm reading the, um, the Death of the Territories at the moment. That's what I'm reading at the moment. Getting ready, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Preparing <laughs> yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Kamala, Big Jim Harris. Wrestled Big Daddy a lot. So I'm looking forward to reading his book. Yeah. Um... But you didn't know that, did you? An well, old old foe of Big Daddy on the British wrestling circuit. Okay, brilliant. Did you know that? No. No. Okay, congratulations. <laughs> Just checking. Well done. Yeah. Um, I probably will know it once I've read his book, though. So. You will know more than me. Yeah. yeah. So we have a Kamala trivia trip. Wasn't his thing that like he wrestled Undertaker at SummerSlam, and he uh, he got like so eight that was grand the article that I read. I read the article that he got like a uh, ten thousand dollars. Yeah. And the Undertaker got like a hundred thousand dollars or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, like, if Undertaker got more than me, I'd understand because he's probably quite a big draw to that event, but not ten times. Yeah. And Kamala at the time was a, just as much a bigger part. Yeah, but like, do you know what I mean? Like, you got to think that really it was it was the baby faces that drew the house to that show. Yeah, but again, like, if it wasn't against a good opponent, like, I'm sure that. I mean, I'm sure if God bless him. El Matador was on the show or not wouldn't have made a difference but I think Undertaker being there being like oh I like yeah you know yeah. no I agree but yeah. like there's a reason why 
you know, the heels would split their, their Polaroid, the baby, the baby faces would split their Polaroid money with the heels. Yeah, and I did that yeah. a few times. Not every time, depending if I like the person or not. Uh, so, uh, who else did you... So, do you remember that promo? You're a real man, Kamala! You're a real man! What was Slick? Yes. Yeah. On Superstars. Yeah, late 92. Yeah. It reminds me of that, so that's probably on the network. Oh, it probably is, yeah. But he, he was gone by... Did he do well, the I, don't think they ever I, don't I don't think they ever really followed him up as a babyface, did they? No, he did a few. I remember one of the Coliseum videos, they were like, teaching him to bowl? Or was that a joke? I don't know. I think that might have been something. Bowling with Kamala on the video, on the cover, maybe? And I if you know. like more Kamala talk, there is a brilliant story about Phil Powers. Oh, yeah. And Kamala. Yes. On one of our previous episodes. Try and hunt that one out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so you've gone with Harvey Whipple. I've anymore? gone with Harvey Whipple. Anymore? Yeah. Oh, Mr. Perfect is another good one. You always say Mr. Perfect. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> He's a legend. Yeah. Also someone who I got his name wrong till he died. What did you call him? Well, because I used to go to school with someone called Mark Hen Ng. Yeah. Right? And I can remember arguing, literally arguing. So I was about n- I was 19 when I think Kurt Henning died. And uh, I argued with a friend of mine that his name was Kurt Henning. And he's a like, no, his Kurt name is Kurt Hennig. Yeah. And uh, I was like, no, it's Henning. And a he lot was right, Kurt yeah. Hennig. A lot of people called him Kurt Henning, or probably still do to this day. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but I, I assumed Henning, because Mark Henning. That's a, that's a cute little... I was just like, oh, my... my must uh, be related. <coughs> my friend Mark Henning has the same name as Mr. Perfect. Um, cool. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think who's a, who's a good... Mr. Perfect, Harvey Whippleman. Yeah, let's leave it at that. Yeah. So who's your pick? Oh, Zach well, Gibson. I, yeah, but I'd like to think of a 90s one, but I can't really think of anyone off the top of my head. Yeah. I should do some thinking, forward thinking. Yeah. Um, Brooklyn Brawler. I'm just trying to think. I just I used to like the ones that used to get riled up. Which is why I said like Blondie Barrett and yeah. like Zach Gibson. Like not that Zach Gibson so gets they, they riled react. up. <coughs> they react. They react to the boom. Yeah. So like William Regal calls it like his turn. He's yeah. like a comic turn. Yeah. You know? And like when I think about that, I I do think I think about William Regal, but I never despised him because he was British. Yeah. But I used to love you know, when Regal was a commissionaire, mm-hmm. um, he did some uh Wonderful skits then. Sure. You know. Um, Kurt Angle is a is Oh, a okay. One. Yeah. Like when he was... When he first came in, yeah. I guess, as the three eyes and all that. Yeah. And then when he was... Uh, and then later on when he was with Steve Austin in the Alliance as well. Yeah. Like that was a great time to... Yeah. Yeah. Lots of fun hating them. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So there you okay. go. Cool. All right. Do you want to explain what our, um, what we're doing today? Yeah. Very exciting. You were super excited. Yeah. Like a little child there with your toy. <laughs> I couldn't wait. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I've got. I've got a load of questions. Unfortunately, I won't. I don't think I'll be here the whole time. So, uh, hopefully, I'll fit some questions ah, in. Ah, well, never mind. Yeah. Um, so today we are going to chat to Finley Martin. Um, who, for those of you who don't know that name, is Andy alluded to a Hall of Famer. He was uh, added to the uh, wrestling wrestling media con Hall of Fame. Probably yeah. the first and last wrestling <laughs> media con Hall of Fame. And that's when I. That's when I. I met him very briefly. Uh, that's the first time and only time I met him was at that. We had a good oh, chat at that media con, uh, but we've been we've been in contact for quite a while. Um, we've I had a lot of me, uh, yeah. phone conversations over the last few years, really. Um, but uh, Finley Martin is uh, 
the man who's responsible for Power Slam Wrestling Magazine. And you'll hear myself and Andy allude to Power Slam Wrestling Magazine a lot in this podcast because that was a big part of our fandom. So um, when other magazines came and went, you're wrestling big shots. Wow. Oh, that was a bit later, wasn't it, I guess? Well, yeah, but it was still around the time of... Like, Power Slam was obviously still in existence. Wow, Pow. Yeah, Total um, Wrestling. Yeah, and then all the the Aptomags used to... Like, when wrestling fluctuated in popularity, obviously, um, you know, you had your PW Insider... um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Pro Wrestling Illustrated. What other ones were there? Uh, Loads. But there was a lot of them, and they were like black and white black and white magazines with like colour bits in the middle and like all kinds of um, you know these magazines Um, and essentially they were the same magazine recycled but with different sure (laughs) so like I don't know I guess like if they got a photographer who sent them 100 pictures from a show they'd use 50 in one magazine and 50 in another to make it look like different magazines I don't know but um, uh, but yeah Finley Martin and then Power Slam magazine was kind of the UK's premier wrestling magazine forever in its entire existence Um, and um, it's what we grew up on and outside of and I I guess it was a real only real mainstream unbiased eyes on professional wrestling would you agree because obviously we had WWF magazine we had WCW magazine but we didn't really have something yeah it was like a a middle neutral yeah neutral he had his opinions yeah, but, it, what, yeah, but, but like, it was neutral. Like it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a propaganda piece. No, he was like, more than happy to. If something was good, he'd tell you. If something was bad, yeah. he'd tell you. Um, so just a real. I hope. I hope I get time to ask him why he hated Crush so much. Oh, he would always well. ride Crush. <laughs> Boring Brian, they'd call him things like that. Oh. And, but I, I loved Crush. Like I even don't I don't know. Even to this day, I'd still watch. We've talked about him very recently. Yeah. Like how he was one of my favourites, and but Power Slam would always ride him and rag on him and. I bet you haven't got the guts to ask him that question. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'll have the time. I hope so. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so we're going to talk about Finley. I think that's done a good enough job of uh, explaining who Finley Martin is. Uh, yeah, like a but real... Some, but he, he's very important to British... To, yeah. When I say to British wrestling, to wrestling within the United Kingdom. Yeah, but he's on, on like a, a, another level, which I don't know if this has even been considered... I first found out that you could actually be a wrestler. Well, first, actually, first of all, I first found out about the FWA through Power Slam magazine in the, uh, in the, so it would have been like maybe a January 1999 edition. It was like, oh, the FWA is staging their first card at the Masonic Hall in Portsmouth. Um, so I found out that was a thing. And I thought, oh, I live near Portsmouth. I didn't go, but I, you know, I did, uh, considered going. Um, and also at the back, uh, say around May, June time, at the back page, Hammerlock Wrestling. Summer camp, yeah, dates, and I went along to Hammerlock with my mum and dad shortly before I left school to check it out. And actually, I've told the story. I think paid a deposit to go to that summer camp, and I found out about that summer camp because of Power Slam magazine. So, uh, and that's a that's a yeah, that's a, that's a great story, and that's a, that's an example of how yeah. influential he was. And yeah. I think a lot of the a lot of um, a lot of information would have been garnered through uh, like about independent wrestling, especially like so ECW. I found out about ECW through um, through Power Slam magazine. Yeah. And uh, I saw about St. Valentine's Day. I never went again like you. Just <laughs> berating you earlier. But St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the you know, EWA event with Dirt Bike Kids and then obviously Rob Van Dam, Sabu. Yeah. Um, at Assembly Halls. Yes. That was advertised in Power Slam. Um, so all this... Uh, 
yeah, you know, like he was a real, uh, the only real place, it wasn't like you could log onto the internet, was it? You know, you'd have, and you have people get not, pen pals. I never had one, but like you'd yeah. have pen pals you could get through yeah. the magazine. There was uh, a, there's a, there's a British wrestler um, from Portsmouth called Gary Haywood. And right around the time I was starting with the FWA, but October 2000, <laughs> I can remember, he says it wasn't him, but there was an advert. Definitely was. He's saying, oh, Gary Haywood from Portsmouth is looking to meet, I don't know whether it was like female wrestling fans or not, but that's what <laughs> everyone was teasing him about, you know? So, yeah. Not bad. We, we never got Smart. to the bottom of that, yeah. I wonder if anyone did ever get married off the back of being a Hammer Slam pen I don't pal. know, but it's not a, not a bad idea, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Meet like-minded people. Yes, yeah, it. Um, so yeah, like I, I don't think his, I don't think his place within professional wrestling can be overstated. No, no I way. Think that he's definitely, um, yeah, he's someone who deserves all the plaudits, um, and I think someone who, you know, like he, he's he's always been the one who's interviewing other people. Yeah. So today we're going to have the opportunity. To interview him, mm. so should we? Uh, should we get him on? Let's get him on. Andy Quilden here, alongside Andy Boy Simmons, and we're joined by uh, one of the real unsung heroes of uh, professional wrestling, um, especially in the United Kingdom, um, and a man who's provided uh, both myself and Andy with uh, so many happy childhood memories. Um, of course, we're talking about. Uh, Mr. Finley Martin. So, Finley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And how old does that make me sound? <laughs> it, it does, does. I was actually commenting, Finley. Uh, we were speaking about you. So, the idea of interviewing you came up uh, a couple of weeks back when we were, we were discussing uh, our wrestling fandom. Um, and one of the comments I made about you, Finley, was uh, when I met you in person for the first time, you were actually a lot younger uh, than I thought you were. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Oh, well, you're forgiven then. <laughs> Fantastic. That's what I like to hear. Yeah, yeah I got to I got to agree actually. So when you get, when you get to my age, compliments like that don't come along very often. <laughs> you must have started when you were about ten or something. Um, well, I am forty-nine, so just so people know, that's how old I am. So, uh, so Finley. So obviously, for those of you who don't know, Finley, uh, he was uh, responsible. Uh, the main. Uh, his main claim to fame is being responsible for Power Slam Wrestling magazine, uh, which started as Superstars of Wrestling, um, which was uh, the, the main source of wrestling news um, if you uh, lived within the United Kingdom. It's before the days of the thing called the Internet. Um, and I'm not sure if you know Finley, but Andy Simmons, who's alongside me, um, his parents actually owned a, a news agents, and they, they were one of the... You were one of the, the people who were... Uh, who had your magazine in one of in in Andy's? You show, were you were so. you you were a top seller in Jade News in Listen Hampshire, Finley. So um, yeah, very popular magazine certainly. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, at various points in the magazine's history, really up until about issue forty, which went out in uh, I think it was October of ninety-seven, we didn't really have that many copies out there. So I'm sure you both remember this. Uh, at what yeah. Time? Not that easy to find. No, that's actually really interesting because I can remember um, we, my parents would get magazines like uh, sporadically. So some, maybe we'd had it before, I'd seen it on the shelves. Um, but a lot of my wrestling news came from, um, I think one of the satellite magazines had like a wrestling news page. Was that you? Do you remember that? I think it was that satellite time. Yeah, quite possibly, yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, so so. Uh, I did do uh, yeah, I did do a monthly column for uh, okay times. Yeah, they went. I think they went under in about two thousand satellite times. Right. So so I, I so you said about October ninety seven. I think you just said uh, certainly by early ninety eight. Power Slam was a monthly fixture in my uh, parents' news agent. So um, yeah, that, that that's spot on. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, we got by then. You know, we'd spent we'd the magazine had had reached a point where it was stable. Uh, it was making more money, which meant we were able to invest. Just like when you're running, uh, you know, wrestling promotion, it's like you've got to make the money to be able to invest to grow. And it was the same principle with the magazine. Oh, great! And the, what, uh, so I used to get my magazine. I I can't even remember where I found the magazine for the first time, but I was just one of those uh, stereotypical wrestling kids. If it had any wrestler on it at all, I had to have it, um, even if it was uh, just a, a a product which was which had a wrestling likeness on it. Um, I just had to have it, and uh, I had a, a local news agent who used to order it in for me um, specifically, and. Uh, I used to I used to get it a day early as well, which uh, which was a wonderful thing for me as a child. I used to pop in a day early. They used to get it delivered, um, and uh, used to give it to me from behind the counter. I don't know if I'm grassing anyone up now, <laughs> but uh, I don't think it really matters. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, they, they were very happy days indeed. Um, so um, I guess. Uh, the, uh, the first real question I have for you, Finley, is how how did you, and obviously a lot of them, just so our listeners know, um, a lot you do cover a lot of this information in in one of your very successful ebooks, the Power Slam Years, um, which I recommend to anyone to listen uh, to to take a read of. Um, it's a, a fascinating um, book, um, which uh, it it covers the business side of the magazine, but it also covers the business side of the wrestling business, and it's very interesting to see the correlation between uh, the success of the wrestling business and the success of the magazine uh, that, that you, you produce. And also what I find very interesting is um, uh, the talk of all the other magazines which, which pop up just trying to um, almost ride the wave of a trend which was professional wrestling in those days. Um, so Finley, if you can tell us, where, like, how did you get into to writing a magazine? And, uh, and if you can give, give us a bit of a background on yourself, that'd be great. Uh, well, I'd gone into the magazine business in 88. Uh, I would have just been 18, just turned 19 when I actually started working in the magazine business. And that was in production. And I worked for a, a guy in Morecambe who ended up being fabulously wealthy in other industries. Didn't, you know, the magazine business did work well for him, but he got involved in like uh, mobile phone technology and all sorts of other things in years to come. He ended up on the Sunday Times rich list and fabulously wealthy. Uh, but when I worked for him, he was a guy that was always one for a, for a trend or a craze. And he'd made his first money from BMXs, which I'm sure would be before mm. your time. And he had a magazine called BMX Bi-Weekly or BMX Weekly. I forget which it was. He did very well out of that. But BMXs in like 83, 84, it was like quite a short-lived craze. Not dissimilar, really, to WWF wrestling uh, when it really hit 91, 92. Now, when did you two start watching American wrestling? How, when did you start watching it? Uh, I was early 92, right around WrestleMania 8. Yeah, okay. so, and same same time for me, 91, 92 would have been uh, my, my reference point. So you'll probably remember how things were in like 93, 94. And it, you're thinking in this country, like, has it gone? You know, will it be dropped by Sky? And it had been huge, obviously, peak with SummerSlam 92. I mean, it could, wasn't ever going to top that at that point. Um, and it was, I remember going to WWF shows in, like, 94, particularly one in 96 in 
in Birmingham and coming out of there, it was like a funereal atmosphere. It was just like depressing. And because I was doing the magazine at the time and the success of WWF, my business was not totally dependent on the success of WWF, but largely dependent upon it because WCW never really made it up on a huge level. Um, it was... Um, it was quite worrying to see WWF not do as well as it had been doing. So was the was the attendance down, or was it the atmosphere was dead, or the wrestlers weren't over, or what was... all of that? Attendance was down. Just it, but it just felt like. I mean, everyone remembers '95 being a very bad year for WWF. '96, it sort of felt like maybe it would pick up again with Shawn Michaels becoming champ, but it never really. I mean, we have these. You know, Bret Hart likes to tell this story of of him being so over in the UK, and he was, uh, and he did do some good business, but he didn't sustain it. I mean, I remember going to see him versus Owen Hart, I can't remember, was it Birmingham or Manchester? And the match was just sort of, I mean, it was kind of average. He was quite famous, was Brett, for taking the night off when he did house shows. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about that. Uh, that sort of contravenes Bret Hart law, doesn't it? Um, but I mean, it was never, it didn't feel anywhere near as big and as hot as it had been. And when your magazine or your business is is really based upon, you know, the ebbs and flows of the business, wrestling business, then you're thinking, well, where do we go next? How do we get sales up, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, get back to the question that you asked me. Um, he was always one for craze. And about 91, when it was getting really big in the UK, I said to him, how would you fancy putting out a wrestling magazine? And he got back to me and he said, yeah. And it was just that simple. But it was very easy back then to get a magazine in the shops. It didn't cost you, you didn't have to, it's not like now where you have to actually pay to, to, to get a, uh, a news agent to stock it. It's ridiculous now how it all works. But back then it was much easier to get a magazine on the shelves. Um, and he just said, yeah, you can write it. And I'd never written anything since school. I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, I, mean, I didn't, it was only like, I don't know, probably about a year or a couple of years in, I, I realised that I didn't actually know as much about wrestling as I thought I did as well. Yeah. So I mean, the whole thing was kind of, it was kind of like quite darkly comical because it was like the whole Ann Anderson, be careful what you wish for. And it was very much like I had this dream that I got to run, wow, I'm going to become an editor and writer of my own magazine, my own wrestling magazine. I'm a huge fan. Uh, but I, I couldn't, I didn't really know how to write. And the truth was, I thought I knew a lot about wrestling, but I really didn't, because all I'd learned was from, you know, the American wrestling magazine, from watching it myself. I think I could tell the difference between a good wrestler and a bad wrestler, but there was a lot of stuff I didn't know about it. So being given this responsibility to write this magazine, it was it was a huge thing, really. Um, and it was entirely on-the-job training. I mean, even nothing media law like you know what you could and couldn't write um when i because i've been okay i've been in the magazine business but i was just strictly production i wasn't doing any writing um you know i hadn't done anything journalism or anything like that at college or anything like that so for me it was it was definitely in at the deep end and it was it was literally sink or swim the thing that saved superstars of wrestling in the early days was that wrestling was so damn hot that people would buy anything. So I, I, I remember you say uh, in, in the book, you mentioned about all the other different wrestling magazines which were being thrown out at the time. Um, 
uh, and uh, and I guess that that kind of go- goes in line with the people buying anything. Um, yeah. You know, um, have you got any memories of, of any of those other magazines which were around at the time, just so we can get an idea of what the marketplace was like for a wrestling magazine? Well, I think what distinguished Superstars of Wrestling, even though it was very poorly written, a lot of people might be quite surprised or shocked to hear me say these things, but I'm a great believer that the only way you ever improve is by accepting when you've got it wrong. And I, when I was writing Pro Wrestling Through the Power Slam years, I had to go back, and you remember this, Andy, from reading the book, and I had to review the first issue. And that was probably about one of the hardest things to do in that book, to actually review how bad that first issue was. <laughs> I, I'm, the, I'm the same. Like, when I look back at um, wrestling shows that I've put on, um, and even recent ones, um, you know, I look back and I, I almost cringe watching them because of all the elementary mistakes that I make because I'm very much a perfectionist as well. And uh, yeah. and you obviously learn lessons along the way and it, it just makes you cringe thinking about how just how stupid you could have been in some of those situations. So I do sympathise with you. But I, I mean, it's self-awareness, isn't it? And it's I think it's a really important thing. And certainly the, the older you get, I think hopefully the more you have of this, some people don't don't ever have a shred of it. And that's why they never really improve or really change. Um, but yeah, going back and looking at that first issue, I was like, my God, this is so bad. This is, so, but it was as good as I could have done it at the time. I don't look back at it and say, oh, you really phoned it in there, Finley. That was, that was all I was capable of doing. But I did try with each issue to make, to improve and to, you know, just trying to tighten up my writing and, learning more about the business and like people point out when you got things wrong and instead of like rejecting that advice, which some people in wrestling do, I'm sure you both know people like that. <laughs> Plenty, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, instead of saying, you know what, that person, because I'm a great believer that you can offer, you can usually learn a hell of a lot more from criticism than you can from praise. As long as that criticism isn't wrapped up in a, you know, ball of venom, you know, isn't like dipped in venom, which obviously some people just criticize you just just out of vindictiveness but if it's done in a way where it's actually they're correct and you're incorrect then you you need to listen to it that's the only way you're ever going to improve sure now the thing i did the thing that's to me distinguished superstars of wrestling from the other magazines apart from the fact that it's very poorly written was that i always saw myself as somebody who was who was really into it this wasn't something that i was just doing because someone had said right um, we're going to do a wrestling magazine because it's really popular. You've got a little bit of knowledge or you know someone who, who has a bit of knowledge, so let's just cash in on it, make a few quid and get out, which was very much the way it was back in 1982. As I said, it was very easy to get a magazine in shops back, back then. And people would buy literally anything if it had Hulk Hogan or Randy Savage or Ric Flair or the Ultimate Warrior or the or Legion of Doom on the cover. So, I mean, it was, to me, from the start i wanted to point out what who were the good wrestlers and who were the poor wrestlers and which were the really good matches or angles or storylines and which weren't and if you go back and look at most magazines back then they weren't doing that it was just really um kind of like really lightweight sort of no real sort of analysis of what was going on and what i was doing compared to how you would analyze pro wrestling now was obviously very primitive but to me, it went deeper than most other publications on the stands. And that's what people have told me. And that's what people have told me. That's the reason why they bought Superstars of Wrestling and Power Slam, because it did seem like it was written by somebody who really cared and was really into it um, and did and could 
um, distinguish between between what was a good show or a good match and what was a bad show and a bad match. You know, case in point being WrestleMania 9, which we all remember with the Hogan-Yokozuna finish. And I remember really burying that in Superstars Wrestling. This was just, what was this, about 14, 15, 16 months in. And by this point, I had... I'd sort of learned how to string a sentence together and the fact that the magazine was still going, I was feeling empowered that this magazine might have more of a shelf life because as, as I wrote in the Power Sam Years book, I only thought Superstar Wrestling was going to last maybe about four or five issues, maybe six tops. So the fact that it was still going, it we were on issue 14 or whatever it was, it really felt like, wow, this magazine might have a chance. This magazine, this may be something that I can actually make a career out of and do for more than you know, a year or 18 months. And I remember at the time, the readership really hated that show. And you always try to be attuned to what your readership's thinking. Sometimes you're not. It's the same as you two being in the wrestling business. You know how it is. You want to try and be uh, in touch with your audience. And when you're not, that's when it's really worrying. Um, so it felt like both myself and the audience were singing from the same hymn sheet. And they really felt an affinity to superstars wrestling because we were writing that, yes, this show was lousy. And they were thinking exactly the same thing. And by then, we went to 93, so the craze is kind of dying out. The magazines are dropping off because a lot of the people are just in it for the money. They're not in it for the long haul. And if their sales are dropping, it'd be like, right, let's stop doing the wrestling magazine and we'll do a magazine on something else instead. Um, so I think that's what kept superstars wrestling alive. And certainly Power Slam was the fact that you know, I was clearly very passionate about pro wrestling. I really enjoyed it. And and I think throughout the whole experience, I did strive to improve. And, you know, hopefully I did. Absolutely. I think I think that um, that's a that's a big key. It was very much uh, your style of journalism, I would say, was uh, one of the the first. It was like, I guess you were one of the first people to, to break kayfabe in such a public manner. Um, would you would you agree with that? Well, um, if you go back and look at, so it wasn't really until 99, because the, back then you sort of had to preserve it in a magazine. Um, I mean, if you look at the, the, probably the two toughest magazines on the shelves were Wrestling Eye and Wrestling Fury. And neither of them, they were American magazines, quite low budget. Uh, but the people writing those publications, some of them at least knew what they were on about. And they would write stuff that would, if you knew what was going, you knew it was a work, then you knew what they were hinting at or indicating. And if you wanted to bury your head in the sand and pretend that it was all real, you weren't going to have any surprises. You know what I mean? So they tread, they, they tread like quite a fine line there. And I think with Superstars Wrestling and its uh, successor Power Slam, I tried to do something. It wasn't really based on what Wrestling Fury and Wrestling I were doing because I always felt like the magazine had its own, own style, mostly because I was self-taught as a writer. Um, and it always had a very you know British, there was a lot of British slang in there, and obviously I'm, I'm English, and it was very much different to the American-style magazine because it was done by a mostly uh, British team of writers. Um, so... Yeah, we, we didn't really come out and say it like, totally until probably about 99. But if you knew what was going on, and most people did as the 90s rolled on, and let's face it, most fans kind of wanted to suspend the disbelief. Even back in 92, 93, most fans 
wanted to sort of believe that it was real, but they knew it wasn't, because how could it be? How can pro wrestling be real? It's just impossible. Yeah, I can remember, remember not knowing how... how you know, my brothers, our two older brothers who got me into wrestling, and they, they, this is all fake, this is all fake, and being eight or nine, and but never understanding how it was fake. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you say, just suspend your disbelief for as long as possible. Yes. I, I think absolutely. I mean, I did judo when I was from the age of... I don't know. I did it in judo in the late in the 70s and the early 80s. And so I would obviously be in real competitive uh, gradings and competitions. And you would have real, even though you're only a kid, it's all relative because your opponents are kids. And it's like, um, so I would be in there and you would have real competitive matches. And the things that would work on, I, on a, you know, ITV World of Sport British Wrestling wouldn't work in judo <laughs> matches. <No. laughs> so from a very early age, you knew that there was some... There was some, you know, there was something uh, a bit unusual about this. There was something about it that was a bit out of the ordinary and that it couldn't possibly be 100% bona fide legit. It just was impossible that those moves and holds would work and and just be done in such a way that it was so smooth. Because, I mean, obviously lots of those British wrestlers back then were really good because they were working seven nights a week with each other constantly and they were really talented. Um so yeah, they would be doing things like they would do like they would actually do like judo style moves, and they just look so graceful. And you think, well, why doesn't that happen on Saturday? When right. <laughs> why don't I land that flat? Why might land on the back of my head? <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it'll be just this really scrappy mess, and you both fall on the floor in a heap. And you're like, well, why? Why is it so difficult? Because it's real. The other person's resisting, not cooperating. <laughs> so. Uh... So, um, so definitely, yeah, we, we event finally got to the point where I think it was, I think it was 99. I think the, I always look back at the Chris Jericho interview we did as the first fully open kayfabe free interview uh, that Power Slam did. And maybe sl- a little bit before that, we were coming out and saying it, but it, it didn't, we were, we were nearly there anyway. So it wasn't like a huge leap to go from where we were to where we ended up. Yeah, I can't remember ever that line being crossed where all of a sudden it was like, oh, now we're accepting it's not real. I think it was, it, it seemed to me as a thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thing. Yeah, and, and if you knew, the way it was written was in a way that, yeah, I know what he's writing there. And that was the way it was, it was all done. And that was by design, obviously. And I, I know it seems crazy, but even like thinking about like wrestlers' real names uh, and, uh, and ages, <laughs> stuff like that was, uh, in those days, was essentially the breaking of kayfabe, you know, because uh, you, that information was very rarely put out there. So um, just little bits like that I used to find fascinating. Uh, that, that, well, that was it. And, and that was why people, because... I mean, a lot of people did have the internet. I, I always sort of figuring, certainly in the UK, the internet became a thing that almost everyone had in about the year 2000. And it was maybe about six, the, America was probably maybe six to nine months ahead. So up until then, you really had to buy a magazine or a newsletter or some type of publication to know all these things because most people weren't online. Absolutely. And, and just I, I want to kind of comment as well on um, what you said about being self-taught. I think that it, I think it's amazing. And I, I, I'm not sure if this is exclusive to the wrestling business, but it's just amazing how many people are, are kind of uh, self-taught when it comes to successful people as well, when it comes to the professional wrestling industry. And I always say jokingly, it's because, uh, 
you know, no one, no one wakes up and says, you know, like, oh, uh, you know, goes to school and says, like, you know, I, I want to be a professional wrestler in the same way they want to be a fireman or a policeman or, or whatever, you know. And, you know, I'm sure journalists aren't, oh, I would like to cover professional wrestling. So, um, you know, you have to be a true fan. Um, and I think that, that that rings true, obviously, in your magazines. Um, and like you said, like, in the early days when people were just knocking out magazines for the sake of it, I was... I, in fact, I was probably the key target audience for all these magazines. You know, like you say, just stick Hulk Hogan on the on the cover, and it and it will sell. Um, but I think that being a real fan and having that almost labor, having the the being prepared to make it a labor of love, so to speak, is the only way that you'll uh, see it through. Because I know you document um, how close many times the the magazine came to going out of business. Um, yeah. So. Uh, so um, so yeah, can you can you tell us about any of those times where where it was almost like, you know, like oh I don't know if we're going to survive the next issue and and kind of what you did to rectify those uh, issues. Well, I mean, there was when the original publisher just rang me up. He just rang me up out of blue. I can't. I think it was early. I think it was early '94. I think we just put issue 26 of Superstars of Wrestling out. I think that's correct. And he just rang me up and he said, Finley, it's not working. And that was it. You know, really, it's not working. Four words, it's over. And that was really scary because I'd kind of, here we were, I was like two years in, and I'd sort of allowed myself to believe that this was something that I was going to continue doing. And what would I have been at the time? I guess it would have been 24. Um, I think I had finished paying off all my computer gear and stuff, but I, I mean, I did typesetting jobs on the side, but there was not really any money in them. And it was all linked to the magazine, particularly the phone line as well, which we'd started in late 92, I believe. So, I mean, that was a really good source of revenue. And as I explained in Processing Through the Power Slam years, for many years, it was the, it was the hotline that was propping the magazine up. Um, so, I mean, do we need to explain what these pro wrestling hotlines are? Well, well, well any li- listeners to our podcast knows that a couple of weeks ago, we unearthed perhaps the only pro <laughs> pro wrestling hotline that's still in existence, which is uh, John Fremantle's premier promotions hotline. Um, oh, wow. And uh, don't, don't ask me how or why, but, uh, but yeah, you can call up that hotline and you can hear a, a very slow report about uh, the upcoming show's results and how you can go on this thing called the internet to purchase tickets um, so um well we don't need to go into it thankfully but, but, i can't, I but, can't but, believe these things still exist I know. but um what tell, like to, but to do tell me about the, the hotline because obviously anyone who watches shows on the wwe network will see um will see adverts for wwf and wcw's uh, respective hotlines um and um and obviously all the numbers are kind of blacked out. So I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people won't realize what huge business these, these hotlines were. Um, so for yourself, what was the process of, of, of the hotline? Um, were you just, unfortunately, I was never allowed to call it. So um, uh, that was one bar that the parents put on. Yeah, I can remember my mum being like, you can't call them. They're very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Yes, they were very expensive, weren't they? <laughs> um, I mean, what you would do is you would record uh, like a six minute message of the latest thing that were going on in the wrestling business you would do uh, also special pay-per-view reviews because for a very long time wwf pay-per-views were not shown live on sky so uh, in order to find out the results you would ring the hotline the next day um so yeah you would basically script it out you do like a uh, like a 
just basically like a six minute script you'd work out exactly how much you needed to write to fit it all into six minutes because by law it couldn't exceed that um, and then you just record it really quickly and as clearly as you could down the, over the phone uh, and then it would just go up and people would ring it um, and f- that was how people found out information um, or information as it happened um, back in the 90s you know before everyone really got the internet um, so, but yeah, it was it was it was I, it was a very successful part of the magazine, and as I just said, it was the hotline that basically carried the magazine for quite a few years. And had we not been doing the hotline, then there's no way Superstars Wrestling in its infancy and Power Slam for probably the first I don't know first couple of years. It, there's no way it could have existed because there was so little profit in Power Slam. It, it wasn't selling enough copies. It never really lost money. Um, but that was partly because I was doing so much of the work so that your costs were right down. But because the hotlines did well, they provided an income which enabled you to do this job. You know what I mean? It was a totally full-on job. I mean, you two both know what it's like working long hours. And it's like, and just almost never having time off. And it, it you know, like it was, and there's no, there's nothing more boring than really talking about how many hours you work. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, well, I used to do this, I used to do that. It's like, well, you know, when you're working for yourself and you want it to succeed, you've got to do, and that's just the way it is, uh, because no one else is going to do it for you. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it was a lot of long hours and it was really tough, but you know what? It paid off in the end, and you know that's what you've got to do if you want to work for yourself. So, yeah, the hotlines were, were, were really good and we, we did well out of them. There's no doubt about it. Um, and probably really up until, I guess, probably 97 was when things started changing. But anyway, you asked me about um, basically about the magazine nearly going under. Well, the guy rang me up and he said, Finley, it's not working. I'm ditching superstars of wrestling. Colin Borman, who was my then business partner, in the phone lines he said to me finley we can do this ourselves we knew nothing about magazine publishing so what we did was we just arranged a meeting with cormag who were magazine distribution distributor at the time they no longer exist by the way uh, and uh, we went to visit them it was quite funny really because you could tell that they knew we knew nothing and we were <laughs> you know it's not like we were going in there you know full of ourselves we were going in there for direction and they just said well you need to do this you need to do that and we wanted to keep the name superstars of wrestling name and they said forget it you need to come up with a new name and so we can launch this anew and um so i think colin wanted to call it slam uh, but there was a newsletter in the states at the time called that and i said what about power slam and we sort of went with that. It was like Davy Boy Smith's finisher. He was still a big, big deal in 1994. So Power Slam was the name. Uh, and that launched in July of 1994, I think. First issue did really well. Second issue was the one with the famous Hogan interview. That did well. Issue three was when it fell off a cliff. That was an Undertaker cover. Actually, it was a pretty good issue, I felt. Um, but sales went right down, and that was really worrying. Issue four did even worse. Uh, that was with uh, actually a really crappy cover uh, with, I think it was Rick Steiner and Road Warrior Hawk. Dreadful cover. Uh, actually, wasn't such a bad issue, but the cover looked terrible. And then issue five, I think, was Hogan and Ric Flair from Halloween Havoc. That kind of picked up. 
Issue 6 was the first. This was December of 94. That was the first PS50. Issue was a bit of a shambles for reasons that will take too long to explain. But it did feel like we'd... It did feel like we'd achieved some stability and that sales were not going to drop. And by Issue 7, Issue 8, things were sort of quite stable. Um, As I've already said, if we were entirely dependent upon this... Uh, as like a means of revenue to pay for me and my life and all these other things. I'm not sure how, if it would have even existed into 1995, but because the hotlines were doing well and they were providing me with an income, then it was worth doing. And the theory was, let's keep doing this because we don't want to do anything else. <laughs> and it's working, you know, you know, and people, you would explain it to people and they're like, well, you can't work all those hours and do all this for like hardly any money. And they're like, well, hold on, we've got this hotline on the side, and that's providing the income. So as a package, it's working. So, so that was really how you viewed it. Um, but uh, into 1996, things were, I don't know, it just felt like things weren't really improving. And this was like nearly another 18 months down the line. And I kind of convinced myself that it was going to go under in 1997. So I ended up moving down to Maidstone, uh, which would have been October of 1996. And my theory was that I would continue running the magazine into early 1997 until it just faded into oblivion, when our business was no longer worth doing, and then I'd get a job in London. That was my plan, and I figured I could commute from, London, uh, from Maidstone to London each day, uh, and that was my plan. And instead, the wrestling business made a pro wrestling style comeback in 1997, <laughs> Uh, and at the same time, Power Slam made a comeback as well. Sales increased. And it was a really magical time. And you thought, wow, we've been doing this all these years. And it really feels like this could be going somewhere. As I said earlier, um, the business was doing well or doing better. So there was money in the business. So with issue 40, we did our first proper promotion where we put loads more copies out there. We did a little crappy supplement that's on the side. It was pretty bad actually but it seemed it seemed really good at the time and sales went up by about i can't remember exactly how many we went the sales went up by maybe about 1500 1600 and you just thought this is looking good this 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 is looking good uh, and into 1998 sales continued to increase but that was also partly because the wrestling business was doing so well in 1998 so it's like what I was saying earlier about when the business was down in 95, that has a knock-on effect to your publication because when fewer people, you know, follows, doesn't it? when fewer people are watching wrestling, then fewer people are going to buy a wrestling magazine when, and vice versa. When more people are watching, more people are going to be inclined to buy a magazine. So 98, things were looking good. And uh, yeah, it was... It was a really magical time because here we were six. Oh, this was after. Bear in mind, it's this six years in, and uh, it really felt like it was starting to pay off. And another really good thing was, after six years of writing this magazine, I kind of felt like I knew what I was doing, and the magazine was looking pretty good as well. So looking back, yeah, it was it's a really good time to be in the business. And it's it's interesting you say about um, how when when the business does well, then everyone does well as a as a kind of byproduct of that. Um, and uh, and I think that holds true with today's current climate. With um, obviously we we won't get into it just yet, but you know, um, just put it putting it out there that you know with WWE um, currently. Um, 
aggressively going after competition when um, you know history would suggest that when when there's more eyeballs on on one product there's more eyeballs on every product um, so you know that kind of uh, bodes towards the argument that um, you know that competition is a good thing because obviously that is uh, that's what led to this boom really um, and uh, and I guess what what I'm kind of interested in is so what first of all let's go going going back a little bit um, what um, what led you to because obviously in the UK WWF was was essentially um, the only brand of wrestling. I, I know WCW popped up a few times, but it was always WWF was seen as a, the premium brand of wrestling. Um, but, yes. what, um, but what led you to start covering um, or to cover um, other other professional wrestling promotions? Um, and, and as well, like you say, um, you mentioned about some of the covers you had there where you featured WCW wrestlers on the cover as well. Um, kind of what, what was your thought process behind that? Um, well, did either of you two go to the uh, the famous WCW real event tour in early '93? No, unfortunately, no. Oh, oh, I was a WWF that. kid. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, that was the time when it kind of looked like WCW was making some serious inroads uh, in the market, and they had Davy Davy Boy Smith. But it wasn't just Davy Boy Smith. It seemed like everyone on the shows was over. Yeah. There's like even Van Hammer was over, which is like, what? I used to love Van, Van Hammer. Hammer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have been there, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been to see the, um, the was it not the real event tour? What was it? Was it the Raw Power Tour, the famous one from December 91, where they were playing these massive venues? Well, is this WCW, um, is it? Yeah, WCW. And I went to, actually, the day I got fired from my last job, which was, I believe it was... It could have even been Friday, December 13th, 1991. Maybe I'm making that up. But it was a, it was sometime in December 1991. I got fired from my last job because I was about to set up on my own. Um, and I went to see WCW at the Sheffield Arena. And I don't know how many people were there. I, I would say less than a 1,000. And it was just embarrassing. And it was quite funny, like Rob Butcher, who was a big part of Superstars of Wrestling and certainly Power Slam in the 90s, he was there. And there was like other people there as well who I would meet in later years. It became, kind of became this sort of badge of honour that you'd gone to see WCW's <laughs> crappy tour that he did. <laughs> but by, um, I think it was in March of 93, and uh, they got Davey Boy Smith in. I think Bill Watts actually signed him just before Watts resigned. I think that's right, because, yeah, Davey made his debut, didn't he, at Super Brawl 3. That's yeah. yeah, early 93, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. And I think Watts had resi uh, resigned a couple of weeks before that show, but he cut the deal with Smith, and Davey came in. And that tour was a glittering success, huge, like really good matches as well, and fans were so into it. And it was such a shame, really, that WCW never really got its act together over here. I mean, I know during the, the famous period in the late 90s of the Friday Night Wars, when Nitro and Raw would draw unbelievably massive ratings, didn't they? They drew huge numbers on, like, Friday nights. I don't know. I mean, it was, like, in the hundreds of thousands, wasn't it? I'm not making that up. I'm yeah. sure that's correct. No, that's true, yeah, yeah. Um, but the WCW never got its act together when it came to screening the supercards or the pay-per-views in the UK. And without, you know, obviously you could watch them on DFS for a time, the German channel, but that wasn't that wasn't good enough. They should have, I mean, that was why WWF pretty much had a stranglehold on the market because they had the Sky Deal. They had it set up so that people could watch everything. With WCW, you could watch Nitro, which sometimes was quite badly edited, but you couldn't watch the pay-per-views. And that was where everything happened back then. Um, 
But to get back to your question of why did we cover other promotions, my theory was was that if someone is a wrestling fan and they only watch WWF and their favourite left or they didn't like the direction the company went in, then they would stop watching wrestling altogether. If you could convince them to become fans of numerous promotions, then they would become a wrestling fan. So if one promotion wasn't doing it for them, another might... Uh, so they would continue watching, and yes, buying Power Slam. Hmm. <laughs> so was, Smart, yeah. So it was partly due to that. You could say, oh, well, that's rather selfish of you, Finley, for doing that. Well, uh, self-preservation here. But also, as well, I liked covering other promotions. I was a huge fan of Japanese wrestling. I remember um, cutting the deal with um, Wally Yamaguchi, who sadly died recently. And he, at the time, was working with, in conjunction with Walt, uh, with Weekly Gong. And I remember uh, he sent me a lot of photos, Japanese photos. And it was issue 23 of Superstars of Wrestling. And they had, like, ran a feature on Atsushi Anita. And the pictures were amazing. It was, like, this incredible inside front cover of Jushin Liger doing this um, diving headbutt. And the photos just looked tremendous. So, I mean, I really like Japanese wrestling. I discovered it, I think, probably sometime in 92, I guess. And I just thought it was amazing. It just blew my mind. So I wanted to cover it. Discovered ECW and I guess, I guess it would have been late 92 or maybe 93. I'm not sure which. But I was a big fan of that as well. Uh, and George Tahinas, who was a photographer who covered ECW for Power Slam, um, I'd got in touch with him and he was supplying me with photos and he went to all the shows and he really enjoyed covering ECW and I thought ECW was amazing. Uh, I mean, the 90, really sort of late 93 through to probably mid 96 period, I just thought was, that was to me his ECW's peak. I mean, it was just tremendous. So I really enjoyed covering it and I enjoyed putting it over and I enjoyed recommending it to people and it was just it made the magazine more interesting by having all this variety. Uh, it made it more interesting for me and the other people to write. And I think it made it more interesting for the readers as well. And I think in the long run, it was mission accomplished and people did become fans of other promotions. But going back to what you said, Andy, absolutely, WWF was still king. Uh, so they got the lion's share of the coverage in the magazine. Uh, but we could get away with putting WCW guys on the front uh, because, you know, WCW did have that popularity uh, and they had really good photo access with WCW, so we get some really good picks for the cover. During that period, sometimes it was, it was quite difficult to get a WWF pictures that were good enough for the cover, and that might sound ridiculous in 2019 when photography, you know, when you think about it, it's really easy now to get good photos of almost anything because camera technology has advanced so much. But you go back to the mid-90s when people are shooting with old-style cameras on prints or transparencies from a great distance. That was the reason why some of those old Power Slam covers weren't very good because, you know, they were shooting from a fair distance in the crowd and you just had to go You just had to go with what you were sent. Um, so I would often be envious of other magazines if they had better covers than Power Slams. And, I, yeah, I've got to admit that we did put out some... Pretty crappy covers over the years. You know? 
And what's interesting is that, so uh, again, you, you've mentioned a couple of times now about pho photographs and, um, and you know, the, the amazing quality of a Japanese photographs, having access to good WCW photographs. Um, now, I seem to recall from a book, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, it took you a while to move across to the digital photographs. Um, yeah. So what would, the, what would the process have been in terms of, were you, have, were you getting photographs physically sent to you and then having to scan them onto a, a page? Yes. How, Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the I think the first time I became aware of digital photography was maybe about 98. And I remember being sent some digital photos probably in 2000. And they weren't very good. The camera technology simply wasn't very good. And the truth was, back then, your prints and your transparencies did look a hell of a lot better. Um, I know because I went through this process. I mean, I did the typesetting and design of of every issue of power slam so i did all that i did all the layouts chose the photos i did everything uh in that department so yeah what you would do is you would be sent the prints and then you'd be sent the transparencies you'd get them sent via fedex which wasn't too bad actually up until i can't remember when it was maybe sometime in the 2000s fuel prices went up astronomically and suddenly fedexes were so expensive uh, for people to send you a FedEx, but it wasn't too bad back in the 90s, as I recall. Um, and you really, you, it was really tricky to rely on the regular post because US to UK, that'd be about a week. But sometimes your photos would be held up in customs and the customs might be sitting on them for six days. And I vividly remember SummerSlam 96. Um, I got sent the photos from that show and customs had all of them, not because there was anything wrong with the photos, but just because they took the time checking to make sure that, you know, the photos were um, were legal or whatever. I mean, it's pictures of Shawn Michaels versus Vader, for God's sake. There's nothing in there that's going to offend anyone. It's just how long it took to get through customs. If it's not a priority mail, if it's just a regular mail thing, they took longer to view it before they passed it on. And it was something like about 13 days before I got my SummerSlam pictures. And I'm having kittens. I'm like, oh, where are my photos at? I'm ringing the guy up every day. Did you send them? Yeah, I sent them. And he ended up having to send me a load of other pictures via FedEx in order to get them to me. Because FedEx, I think, would take maybe two or three days back then. I think it was two days FedEx would take. So he had to FedEx me the photos so I would receive them in time to do the layout, which was, you know, the big selling point of that issue. Uh, so that's the way it was back then. Yeah. So what you do is you do your layouts, you measure it all up, then you send your then you send your prints and your transparencies to your color originators, who would scan them, do all the color work to make sure the pictures looked as good as they could, clean them up and get rid of you know debris on the pictures or whatever, and then that would be sent. Then they would be sent to the printers from which they would make plates, and then they would print it from the plates. So that's how it was all done. We moved over to. Um, Digital photos, I think it was in about 2002, I think it was. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it was. It did think, make things a lot simpler, a lot more straightforward, a lot quicker. Um, and by then, the digital camera technology had come along in leaps and bounds and was better than prints and transparencies. Um, so I don't really feel like... You look back and say, well, you were a dinosaur, Finley, you weren't moving with the times. But I think I actually moved over to digital about the right time. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think that you know if you if you heard th- that statement without um, without having any context, you'd be like, you know, you should have moved across sooner. But I think anyone who looks back at any digital photographs, um, so even from if you look at from the start of Facebook, if you look at photos at the start of Facebook and compare them to what a mobile phone can do now, you can really see the difference in quality. Um, and I'm sure that was even more so, um, you know, in the in the na- in the nineties. Um, so um, so yeah, I think. But one of the big selling points, obviously, about Power Slam was those great pitches you had, um, and uh, and and it almost, especially for me, especially the international the pictures of the international shows and stuff like ECW, which we never had access to unless we were, uh, you know, um, had access to tape traders. Um, yeah. So um, so stuff like that, I think, was huge. Um, so I, I think that was a good decision, um, and just a. Power Slam, obviously, it's built a lot of communities, um, and the tape trader community was was one of them. I imagine you yes. were strongly involved as well. Um, have you got any memories of that at all? Yeah, I mean, I never saw any money from it. Some people may think, well, you were cut in. I wasn't cut in for anything. I would get sent tapes from these people, of course, for free, but I wouldn't. I didn't see a penny of the profits or money that anyone made. There was no conspiracy there. This was not like you know, Doctor George Zahorian. So it was a big part of it, I felt. And, um, you know, people would order tapes from uh, the various characters who were operating back in the 1990s. Um, and a lot of those tape traders, I know, did very well out of it. Uh, but that was not an easy job either. That was a lot of long hours. And I'm sure we all know, or I'm sure you're familiar with the stories of people who did tape trading and weren't entirely honest about it and the chaos and problems they caused for people back then. Uh, but that was a big part of it, yeah, because you would, you know, you'd do a feature on whatever, ECW, Hostile City Showdown or whatever. And um, and then, then like, everybody wanted to watch it all. I remember the night the line was crossed was a, 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 an ECW show that we really got behind because I felt it was such an amazing show at the time. Like, really quite, quite like a groundbreaking show. And that was something that we really plugged in the magazine. Oh, you've got to see this. So you would have, yeah, the the, uh, the names and addresses of the tape traders in the back of the magazine, uh, and people could buy um, the tapes from them, the old VHS tapes from them. Um, so yeah, that stopped the, the, me listing the uh, tape traders. Uh, stopped for a very good reason. I'd rather not go into the reason why it stopped, but let's just say that somebody rang me up and had a word with me and said, Finley, uh, if you continue to advertise these tape traders, we will cease and desist from advertising in your magazine. You may be able to work out who that was. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, that was, I was like, okay. So we didn't advertise them anymore. Uh, and that was it. We were told you can't do this anymore. And the advertising was obviously very important to the magazine. I didn't see any money from the tape traders. And so you do what you've got to do as a businessman. Absolutely, and uh, and and that's that's interesting because obviously you, you must have been walking a tight line the whole time. Um, yes, and uh, and and like you said, you uh, essentially you reported as a fan, so you gave your opinion on stuff. So um, so like you said, you mentioned about WrestleMania Nine. You weren't afraid to pan that show. Um, how did giving negative reviews to thing how to things how did that affect your relationship with um with the wrestling promotions and did you have any relationship with wrestling promotions because obviously i know you had a lot of access um for some of the great interviews um that you had throughout the years um well i mean a lot of people didn't like it but i mean i always felt that i always felt that the big time promotions could take it 
And it was really just the sign of a small timer who would have a massive meltdown if they couldn't take the criticism. Uh, I'm sure you both right now <laughs> have various names in mind. <laughs> <laughs> but he's right. I mean, the thing about it was, if you if you were wanting to do a magazine, which was, you know, my vision for this magazine was, once I'd, once I'd actually worked out how to do a magazine, which took me a while, my vision for it was that it was going to be something that people could read and they could read the reviews and that review would then be worth something. And it would be a review that was written based entirely on merit, not on me trying to preserve a relationship with a company or a, you know, a, a, a wrestling promotion or a videotape distributor. I mean, it was quite funny, really, because Silver Vision obviously advertised with us every month, pretty much throughout uh, Power Slam's run. And we'd absolutely pan certain releases. And they'd ring up and they'd say, well, you didn't, you didn't like that last uh, VHS, did you? You really panned that. I can, uh, I can remember, Finley, when you reviewed Capital Carnage. And uh, that was a show I, I attended as a 14. And I had a great time on the night. And I was absolutely heartbroken. I think when Sam Power Slam absolutely tore it to pieces, um, you know, maybe four weeks later. <laughs> uh, well, Kenny and I, we, we, uh, we, because it was the 20th anniversary, wasn't it, in December of Capital Carnage? Yes, and yeah. Kenny and I, we reviewed it for Inside the Ropes. And uh, I've got to say, I mean, I think he liked it more than I did. Okay. I still it was pretty bad you know <laughs> and uh, i mean a real highlight for me was vinnie jones I mean, oh yes yeah hilarious, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah he was yeah someone i think vinnie jones even tweeted about it uh, maybe even this week and put a video up and of the highlights of him pushing over the big boss man and yeah 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 see that to me that was a great night but yeah you know, i was like how can power slam hate this show i don't understand i was 14 at the time so uh yeah to me, Jacqueline's well, boobs out and everything made a great night. <laughs> I mean, you go back and watch it now and some of it's like politically correct. I don't think so. Oh, I mean, no, so... no, 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 no. No, my mum had a big problem with Vince McMahon's promo that night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm, I mean, it's just like, wow, I cannot believe. But I mean, you know, you've got to look, you've got to, you, when these things happen, obviously it's indefensible now, but you've sort of got to try and view them through the prism of the times, haven't you? Sure, and, sure. And, Obviously, Vince wouldn't go out and do a promo like that now. No. But he was able to do a promo like that in 98 mm-hmm. because, okay, he was being a heel and he was being obnoxious and everything, but you could get away with more bad then. I'm not saying it's right. Of course, it isn't. It's indefensible now, but that's just really, like a, you could say it's like a social document at the times. You know, this is why a lot of situation comedies from the 60s and the 70s, you cannot broadcast them now. It's impossible because people would be up in arms. But at the time, they were popular because attitudes were different back then. Of course, yeah, I agree. You know, and we hope as a society we always move on. I mean, not all of us do, but we hope as a society <laughs> we do. And I think that has reflected certainly in wrestling. I think it, I think it is. Would you agree with that, Andy? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely do. And I think it's... Uh, but, I mean, even... I mean, stuff has changed even the last five years. I mean, it's, it's consistently changing. And um, um, But I, I believe everything should be... Um, viewed with context um and i think that um yeah it's, it's very hard isn't it um i mean i think that i i i i, I, I struggle when when people criticize so for example if, if something like that you know vince mcmahon promo comes up and, and then everyone's all of, all of a sudden on vince mcmahon we have to understand the times we lived then were completely different um, yeah and i think that's just very important um and i think that um 
you know, I think that what's also important is is documents like like the old issues of Power Slam for for that historical context because we can look back at that now. Um, yeah, and uh, and there's a lot of stuff um, referenced, uh, I guess, within the magazine which prov- helps provide that context. So, um, for example, um, what I like to do um, is I, I look I watch back a old old shows on the WWE Network um, and then I like to look back at old issues of Power Slam um, and the Wrestling Observer um, and see what see what you guys were saying about the shows at the time to see if because there's a lot of stuff I don't really remember being offensive but I watch it now and I'm like oh my god was that offensive then and then I like looking back at and cross-referencing against um, you know wrestling editorial from around that time um, to see if it was picked up on a picked up upon at all during those times and very often it it wasn't because it was just an accepted norm in those days which isn't saying yeah. it's a good thing it's not it's not i'm not defending it it's it's uh it just shows you how as a society we've managed to to move on yeah yeah definitely i mean continuing to answer the question yeah i mean there were times when promotions were not happy at all uh quite often the photographers got the brunt of it i remember uh, the guy who did the tna photos was was uh, <laughs> He ended up getting the cold shoulder one time after I'd done a massive burial of, I think it was a TNA in early 2007. I think this was when Vince Russo was in full effect. And um, and there'd been, I think it was a match between Sting and Abyss where a, where a casket had been lowered from the ceiling and it was just dire and the whole show was just terrible. And I'd absolutely blasted it. And I think I'd done a feature called Wrestling's Dumbest Matches and TNA was well represented. <laughs> it's a surprise. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he, he took a he had a really hard time over that. Um, other times, people in ECW, I remember um, I remember George Tahinas one time being confronted by I think it was by uh, Bubba Ray after we'd uh, had absolutely trashed a Dudley's match. But, I mean, the Dudleys back then, generally the stuff in ECW was was really awful, and I was astounded that they were able to do so well in WWF after the matches they had in ECW, most of which were really, you know, mediocre at best. So sometimes you would take flack from people uh, and they wouldn't be happy about it. Um, Often wrestlers would be pissed off, especially if you interviewed them for a second time and they'd have a go at you about stuff that you'd, you'd maybe, you maybe the way that you'd sort of phrased, well, not phrased or, but just the way things had gone with from a previous interview or the uh, reaction that they got from it, the heat they'd got from it, somehow they'd try and like displace that onto you. And I would never put up with any of that. Absolutely no way. Uh, and I would just, I would just say, well, listen, I stand, you said those words and those were the consequences of your actions. And I think you've got to be like that with wrestlers. You can't really allow them to, to sort of intimidate you. Um, so there were times yeah, when people were not happy but my responsibility here, and you'll both understand this, I'm sure, is that your responsibility is to your customers. Your responsibility is to the people that are paying your wages and keeping your business upright. So if somebody who's not paying to keep your business upright is upset about something you've done, um, I should you really, is that really your priority? No, it's not. It's putting out a product that you believe in and that your audience is going to believe in and your audience is going to respect you for saying or writing what you believe to be true. And if that has consequences in terms of you getting heat with people, well, so be it. I mean, I think, you know, you, you can't, you can't do this. You can't make friends with everyone. You just can't. 
I mean, you can sort of try, but if you do, then your credibility is out the window. And I think you've got to try and be, you've always got to try and be honest. You know, you, and in wrestling, I think credibility is very difficult to build in wrestling, I think. You can make money, well, certainly it's difficult making money in wrestling now, but you can make money back in the 90s and 2000s. Um, you could make money a lot easier than you could gain credibility. So that was very important to me. And, you know, hopefully we preserved it. I'm sure there were times when we kind of didn't do things that we probably should have done. Um, but I don't feel like I was ever really influenced by anyone in the business into writing something that I didn't believe in. There was maybe some things I did. I look back and think, well, I wasn't really happy with that. But generally, no one had editorial control over me. I did what I felt was right. And, you know, I think that was why the magazine, you know, was as, as successful as long as it was. And uh, when you uh, just... I know you went to a lot of shows, um, and uh, you, you had your. I think it was, did you do wrestling road trip articles about some of your adventures? I know uh, John Lister was in some, um, maybe Rob Butcher as well. Um, yeah. But um, when you went to those shows, did you make yourself known as Finley Martin from Power Slam, or were you, um, or did you kind of keep yourself to yourself? Um, so not to raise the alarm <laughs> well I, I didn't go probably to as many shows as you might imagine because i was always working and if i wasn't working i really liked and i'm sure you both understand this as well when i wasn't working when i wasn't doing it i would like to do something that had nothing to do with pro wrestling because that was what really kept you kept you fresh and interested and you didn't become jaded and you didn't basically overdose on the business which is a very easy thing to do um and, you know, it's like the whole thing was something far longer than a marathon because you're keeping you've got to preserve yourself. You've got to make sure that you don't burn yourself out or end or worse. And there probably were times than when I felt this, but I really tried hard not to fall into this trap. And the worst thing you can do is end up resenting the business because for, for whatever pathetic reason. And I tried really hard not to do that because. You know, you can say, well, I really, you could say to yourself, well, why can't I go to that social function this weekend? Or I can't because I'm going to be doing, I've got a deadline and I've got to, I've got to do the magazine. Or why can't I do this? So why can't I do all these other things? Well, because this is your job. You've got to get this magazine out and you've got to get it out on time because it's chaos. If you don't put the magazine out on time, it's got to go out on time. It just got to, it doesn't matter what happens. That magazine has to go out on time. So um, the thing about it is the worst thing you can do is end up sort of not, not enjoying what you're doing and you kind of that can somehow affect the way you write about something uh, and I tried really hard not to do that so when I wasn't writing about wrestling or watching wrestling or thinking about wrestling if I had some time off I would do something that was not wrestling related so I didn't go to as many shows as you might imagine to give myself a break from it I did go to shows and when usually when I went I would just blend into the background no one knew what i looked like i go along usually sit really far from the front i always used to like sit like uh, you know on the, the first tiered section or the back small venue and um, and then you can observe the crowd as well and really get a feel for what's going on but usually i wouldn't identify myself i mean um we spoke, didn't we, Andy, in, uh, the rest at uh, the uh, the convention back in September? Yep. We, we, we and but you were doing ring announcing for a show that I went to somewhere in Yorkshire. Oh yeah, the Dragon Gate show. Yeah, we spoke about that. Yeah. 
I didn't speak to you there, I don't think. But I no. think I did say hello to Mark. It was Mark Sloan, wasn't it? Yes, that's that? correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I went over and spoke to Mark. And that was very brief. But I know that when you're at shows, people are really busy. They've got stuff to do. And they don't have time to talk to you. I mean, I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah, the show days are quite quite hectic. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I appreciate, you know, you don't want to make yourself a burden. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I can ap- completely appreciate that school of thought. And also, I can completely appreciate... Um, you know, as a, as a journalist wanting to kind of almost remain neutral and not build those relationships with people because it can lead to bias, whether whether you like it or not. Really. Mm. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we see this all the time with people. I mean, go on in. Go up. There's a lot of bias out there. And there the always has been. This is not a new thing at all. Um, so uh, I, I'd also like to talk about some of the interviews uh, that you've done over over times. I know you've mentioned before about some people being upset about being misquoted or when they, you know, their 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 words. Um, obviously, not, not misquoted, just with the comments that they'd made, then blowing up in their face. It's like, hold on a minute, you said that thing. I don't think I don't think I misquoted anyone ever. But some people get pissed off that they do an interview with you and bury somebody. Then you'd run it in the magazine and really draw attention to it. And then they'd have a go at you for something that they'd said. So, well, that's that's just that's typical pro wrestling, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so, so in, ter- in terms of those uh, interviews, um, so obviously we... One of the things I find most fascinating about this interview so far is just the the way that technology has changed. So already we've spoken about, you know, the change to digital photography. We've spoken about wrestling hotlines. Um, obviously, we're doing this interview today over Skype. Um, and uh, But in those days, Skype wasn't a thing. So uh, you'd have to use a, a thing called a telephone. Um, <laughs> not, a, not a mobile phone either, a telephone. Um, so tell me a bit about the process of... of, of first of all arranging interviews with guys and then um how you'd go about doing it obviously being in the uk obviously the time difference between the majority of the guys are in the us there's a big time difference there um and then um would you record the conversations or would you would you write write by hand um do you still if you recorded them do you still have the conversations um well a lot of i don't have the early ones no because they were done in those old style tape recorders with the little tapes and they just kind of i would then tape over them you know and um all the quality was really bad i mean funny you mentioned about doing this interview over skype last year i did an interview with don Callis for wrestle talk magazine yeah. and uh, we said well let's do it over skype and the internet reception where he was was so atrocious that we had to just stop the interview and i said i'm gonna ring you so i had to do it the old-fashioned way and what the way i would do it is i would have two phones set up so i'd speak through one and then I'd record through the other. So you just get the tape recorder and you just you just uh, you put the tape recorder to the earpiece, not not to the mouthpiece, the earpiece. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and that's how you would do it. So you'd have one phone like in another room uh, on a long flex and then you would do the talking uh, in, you know, in a, a distance from where you're recording. So it was only recording the voice of the person speaking or mostly the voice of the person speaking so that was the old school way of doing it and people say well that's quite primitive so well, yeah but it works <laughs> you know uh, and that's how i do it and obviously tape recorders now are digital so they're much more sensitive and um, but back in the day you do these phone call you do these interviews over the phone sometimes the reception was really bad and you'd be and then your quality of your recording equipment was obviously very 
because it was what people used in the 90s, so it wasn't good as what people have in 2019. So it would be very difficult to understand what they were saying. But generally, it was all right. I mean, what you do is you, you'd, you'd ask people that you knew if they were interested in doing an interview. Sometimes it'd be through a photographer. Sometimes it'd be through somebody that you knew that worked for the promotion. Sometimes you would ask somebody that um, you previously interviewed if they thought that so-and-so would do an interview. And then if they said, yeah, then you would get the interview that way. Sometimes it'd be set up by a PR firm. Um, there was the thing about doing the ones through PR firms was often you would only have a certain amount of time, which was quite frustrating. I mean, you can get a decent interview in 20 minutes, but you're not going to get like a, like a classic interview, really. Um, I remember doing the interview with Brock Lesnar in 2007. It was late 2007, shortly before his UFC debut, which I think was in the February of 2008. And that was set up by UFC. Uh, and I really had as long as I wanted with him there, so that was great. UFC had been really good in terms of setting interviews up for us, always very accommodating. Um, I think WWF, I think the only time I ever got a WWF interview, me personally, there were other people on the magazine that somehow got interviews through WWF. And I did the famous one with Mick Foley right after Hell in a Cell 1998. Um, and what I had to do there was I had to go through the office he wanted to do it because I'd interviewed him a few times before when he was in ECW and I think he was actually affiliated with WCW at least one of those times as well. Foley was always great. Um, and somebody I know had seen him and asked if he'd be willing to do an interview with Power Slam and he said yes. Um, so, But I had to go through the office because he was obviously a contracted WWF guy at the time. And what I had to do was I had to end up uh, faxing Here's another technological thing, another technological fact. Do people have fax machines anymore? Um, Do they... I don't. <laughs> but I had to fax over the list of questions. And they were fine with the list of questions, amazingly. Um, I know things changed in the 2000s, particularly after um, the incident that we don't really want to talk about in 2007. Things changed a lot in terms of how WWF dealt with media after uh, 2007 um but they were they were all right i've got to say but i think that was the only time i i personally got an interview through the office and Foley was very accommodating uh that was a really good interview and it was a real scoop for us because I, I believe in fact I, i'm convinced actually that was his first in-depth interview since the famous helen cell match at king of the ring 1998 and we talked about it in depth and talked about lots of other things as well. Foley was, he was always great value for money. I'm sure you both know that. Um, so it was all sorts, really. You would take an interview however you could get it. I mean, a lot of times, you know, people wouldn't speak to you or people would agree to do the interview um, and then not really be that into it. Um, and you, my philosophy on interviews was they need to want to do this interview and if they don't really want to do the interview, then it's probably not going to be a very good interview. And if it's not going to be a very good interview, why do it? And uh, was there any were there any interviews which you uh, you kind of just stopped, and or were any any interviews that you you kind of did and then decided not to publish? You don't have to name I, names if you don't want to. I don't think so. No, I think I ended up. I think I ended up using all the interviews that we did. I mean, there was, 
there was a few that you know there was a few that really weren't very good and I'd, I'd really rather not go into those um I mean I think most of the interviews we did were 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 worthy of publication I remember one time I think somebody had got in touch um and they'd done an interview with um who the hell was it it was it was um Jeremy Borash that was it and he'd done an interview with Jeremy Borash and Borash had just basically praised Vince Russo throughout the interview and it was just like I, you know I can't run this interview so that was one we didn't use because it just didn't I mean it just flew in the face of everything we'd written about Vince Russo in prior years uh, so that was one we didn't use and um, there was a Chris Jericho interview I did in 2010, which was probably the most difficult interview I ever did. Um, and he was really surly on the phone with me. And it was very disappointing because we'd done this interview in 99 and he was tremendous, really good interview. And then somebody, I think it was Anthony Evans, had done an interview with him in late 2005 or it could have been early 2006. And that was a really good interview as well. And I'd been offered this interview with him in 2010. And I think it was something to do with um, it was something to do with a PR company, I believe, that was representing Fozzy. So in order to get the interview, I had to agree to ask him numerous questions about the band, which I didn't really want to do. But sometimes to get an interview, you've got to talk about these things. Often when these people do interviews, they're there to promote something. That's the way it is. Uh, and then you hope after they've promoted this thing that people probably aren't that interested in, um, they will talk about the things that people are interested in. Uh, and the trick I've found is to always talk about the product or the you know tour or the event or whatever it is, do that first. Then you've got them theoretically on side. Uh, they know that their job's done, that, they, that you've done a few questions or a number of questions about this event or this product or whatever, and then they're more relaxed and they'll talk about the things that you actually want them to talk about. So we talked about Fozzy. I don't know how many questions we did, maybe seven or eight, but quite a lot. And then I said to him, are you willing to talk about WWE? And he he, seemed, he said it with reluctance, yeah, and the interview was just really hard work. And there was like one point in it, and I just thought his answers were basically unusable. He's like, kayfabe me it's like 2010 it's like you weren't kayfabe me in 1999 why are you doing 11 years later so so he was being really quite awkward and um i remember thinking to myself i'm going to ask him this question and if his answer is useless i'm just going to end the interview i'm just going to say chris it's been nice speaking to you today uh, I hope your tour goes well or good luck at WrestleMania or whatever and that next next question was a bit of a breakthrough and the interview continued but I mean, it was, he was really, he was really a bit off with me in that interview. That was really hard work. I was kind of quite taken aback how he talked to me, especially since, you know, we'd done this interview in 99. He was the cover of that issue. If you look at his first book, A Lion's Tale, that cover, that Power Sam cover is actually featured on the cover of his first memoir. So he was, he obviously, he obviously liked, you would want one assumes from that that he was happy with that interview that we did. We gave him like I think it was six pages. I mean, it was a terrific interview. You know, we had some really good photos, a really nice layout. Um, he was very topical at the time because he was just about to leave WCW, and in fact, 
I think he left WCW a very short time after we'd done the interview and signed with WWF before that issue was actually published. So the timing of it was beautiful. It just couldn't have been better. So I was always very grateful to him for that. And for him to be to, to act so differently 11 years later, I, I don't really know why he did that. And that was very disappointing. Interesting. And that's, uh, I guess that's, uh, yeah, one of those uh, one of those things you might have caught him on a bad day or it may have been just the difference between doing media for, for Fozzie. I guess it was quite a vigorous media campaign for them because obviously, um, I guess when you're, because uh, he was, I guess, Fozzie at the time, I, I guess Fozzie's a, a big deal now, but I, I mean, they had to put a lot of legwork in to make it, to make it happen, to make it work. And I, who knows what number interview you were that week? You know, I think that, that may have contributed to it as well, but um but, possibly, but I mean, I don't think that's any excuse at all. Oh, absolutely, I mean, we absolutely should, not, no. I mean, we should have, you know, we'd had this, you know, we were not pals or we didn't have a relationship or anything. We'd obviously had dealings with each other dating back a long time. And uh, I was really, yeah, really, yeah, really just afterwards, I was quite miffed really at the way that he talked to me. But, you know, that's Chris Jericho for you. Yeah, interesting. I'm sure that it's so, like so many different characters you must have uh, spoken to. Have you, is it any... Uh... Any real characters that stand out? <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you knew Jack, of course. I did interview him, I think, for the first time in, I think it was 2000. And then I think it, we spoke again in 2012, I believe it was. I remember one uh, one uh, wrestler who now works for WWE, uh, a big star there, got in touch with me after that and was just like, astounded by the things that he said and he was just like he just thought that interview was just the most insane thing he'd ever read and um, so that was really funny to get that feedback from somebody who's now a big big star out there saying that he he just couldn't believe that the things this new jack was saying uh so he was obviously a big character for for lots of different reasons uh, I mean, Paul Heyman was always a tremendous interview I mean I think I interviewed him for the first time in I think it's 2008 and then interviewed him again in 2010. I think I interviewed him twice in the space of, I think it was a month. Um, that was when he was in negotiations with TNA, uh, which was a very interesting time to catch him. I know some people didn't really like his interviews in 2010 because there was a lot of business-related stuff in there. And people were like, well, he's why is he talking about this? You know, who cares about market share and all this other type of thing? So I thought, I, I thought those interviews were really good. I mean... You know, Paul Heyman, we, we know how he is on TV and he's just as good uh, when you're speaking to him over the phone. So he was he was a big character. Um, Honky Tonk Man, uh, in my final book, The, uh, the Power Sam Interviews, Volume 2, um, I did, like I think it was about a 13,000-word interview with him, covered his entire career. Uh, that was probably the best interview I ever did. I think probably the second best interview I ever did was with Daphne. Remember Daphne from yeah. WCW? Yeah, of course. That was in the Power Slam Interviews view, uh, Volume 2 as well. And we talked a lot about her, you know, her trouble with her bipolar and just all her, just her whole career, really, from WCW through to TNA. And obviously, she was at one point actually um, in litigation with TNA about changing the independent uh, contractor classification. It was, you know, she was a... She did things. She, what she tried to do there, was a huge thing. 
And I don't think it's ever really been acknowledged. So we talked about that in, de in depth there. Um, so she was a really good uh, interview as well. Uh, I think we spoke for about two hours or something. So, so that was really in depth. Talked about all sorts of different things there. Um, who else is really big character? Um, Shane Douglas, my famous one interview that I did with him in 96 after he'd left. I know Shane Douglas, Troy Martin, whatever you want to call him. He's kind of been discredited in recent years. But at the time, this was a huge interview for the magazine. He'd gone into WWF in 95 as Dean Douglas, who I'm sure you both remember, right? Of course, Sorry. yeah, yeah. One of my favourites. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it had been a disaster for him. Uh, and he'd gone back to ECW, and it was just, I thought it was a groundbreaking interview for the magazine. He was talking about the Click, uh, who were, of course... Razor Ramon, Diesel, Shawn Michaels, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, as he was at the time, and 123 Kid. And just talking about all the things that they did, like they were, he like accused them of holding Vince McMahon to ransom and all the things that were going on backstage. And it was like, wow, this is 1996. No one was, as far as I know, no one was doing interviews like that in any other wrestling magazines at the time. So that just felt like a huge interview and that got a massive reaction on the letters page uh the following month some people were like defending him oh yeah shane douglas he's just called wwf out it's terrible then other people were like well what a loser this guy is you know how dare he criticize Riz ramon and diesel and Shawn michaels and hunt hurst helmsley how dare he accuse hunt hurst helmsley of carrying the clicks bags and all this other stuff so that was a really big interview um i guess some of the really the, the ones that historically uh, were really important were ones that I didn't do unfortunately uh, Oliver Hurley did like a really like a huge interview with Bruno San Martino in 2009 we ended up running that over two issues that was so big he'd done an interview with Harley Race the previous year I mean Harley Race to me is just one of the greatest ever and you know always just in awe of that guy uh, and that was an interview I really wished I could have done, uh, but I didn't do. That was that was Oliver's. He did a really good job there. Um, who else? I mean, I never interviewed Kurt Angle for Power Slam, but we ran several interviews with Kurt Angle in the magazine. I never got to do any of them, so I'd like to interview Angle someday, because uh, I've never never uh, spoken to him for an interview. Um, I mean, some of the other big interviews. I mean, just ones like Eddie Guerrero. I interviewed him in two thousand one after he'd been fired by WWF. Uh, and he was, you know, you could see that he was a guy that he was, he was humble. He knew that he had to just, because obviously he'd been, he'd had a lot of uh, problems with the, with the drink and the drugs. He'd gone into rehab. He'd come out of rehab and then he'd been arrested for drink driving and WWF's like, that's it. We're just going to let you go. And it was a, a huge turning point for him, like a moment for him where he needed to change and he knew that uh, he couldn't go down this road anymore and when I did the interview with him which was sometime in December of 2001 he was really very open about his problems and that he needed to change and that's what he did you know and he redeemed himself and uh, WWF or WWE would have been by this point I think they rehired him I think was it May of 2002 I believe it was so I mean it was really quite um I think it was huge for the magazine to catch him at that point in between WWF gigs. And we talked about his ECW career, his career in Mexico and 
his time in WWF. Um, so that was a really big uh, interview for the magazine as well. Um, Brian Pillman uh, interviewed him in 96. Actually interviewed him, uh, I think it was either the day before he signed with WWF or two days before he signed with WWF. So that was a, another huge coup for the magazine. He went on the cover of that issue, which I think was issue 24, I believe it was. So getting to speak to Pillman was a real highlight for me. Um, is that enough? Do I need That's to continue? A, well, no, it's, it's a very <laughs> yeah, impressive you, resume. Yeah. And as you said, Finley, uh, you're, uh, we, we probably done, we've probably done bad here by not starting off by plugging your stuff, but you have got two excellent interviews books out, uh, e-books uh, available, um, including a fantastic interview. I'm disappointed you didn't m- mention it, Finley. There's, a, there's an interview with myself in the second, ah, the second God, volume. Obviously, so, uh, well, obviously the third best interview oh, there we I've go. ever done. <laughs> yeah, the third best. There we go. Um, <laughs> And, and I, I, I've got a couple more questions just around the subject of interviews. Don't forget the, the Power Slam interviews are available from a Kindle store. Um, but a couple more questions are, um, first of all, talk to me about your phone bills, because this was a uh, day and age when calling the States was very expensive. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there'd be about maybe 700 quid a quarter, 700 pounds a quarter. Wow. <laughs> And that, that and that's, be... But that's when £700 was a, a representative of a lot more than £700 is in 2019. Yeah, I mean, the things back then, I mean, you've got to remember back then, British Telecom pretty much had a monopoly on it. And uh, there were ways around it. You could get these phone cards and stuff. But I mean, I, I mean, back in the day, the magazine was doing all right, you know, or at least there were times when it was doing well. So it was just a business expense and it was just a necessary thing. I mean, you were on the phone a, a lot, every, almost every, well, you were on the phone basically every day to the States, to somebody. So yeah, you'd look at about 700, 700 pounds a quarter in like 95, 96, which was obviously a hell of a lot. <laughs> 700 pounds back then uh, was, uh, would, you know, 700 pounds back then bought you a hell of a lot more than it does in 2019. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was just, part of it i mean i didn't i think i got online in 97 that's when i got email but that you remember dial up back then was so slow absolutely yeah uh, and um and there weren't that many there were websites out there but it was mostly just message boards and you never really knew what was and wasn't true because someone would post it and then everyone would just you know echo those remarks without any knowledge of whether whether or not the information was true or not yeah i so seem that- to recall back in those days with message boards as well there was no real verification you did you could have just posted as anyone um as yes. well so it wasn't like you were posting from an account or anything you could just put any username you wanted and and post whatever nonsense you wanted and and post it as fact yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i think into the 2000s the, the whole telephone business changed um, and bills went down greatly because there were so many people getting involved into the in the phone business. I mean, I'm not really an expert on that, but I know I remember getting some somebody in one time, and he said, "Oh well, we'd like to review your uh, we're an independent company, and we'd like to review your your telephone bills and see if we can save you money." And, the, and it sounded it kind of sounded like a scam, but the guy was great. He came in and said, "Well, we've checked out who you call in. You need to be with these people. I saved a fortune." And um, so, yeah, things did. It is kind of ironic, isn't it, that, you know, you look at phone bills now that are so much cheaper than they were 25 years ago. And that makes, in a sense, no sense. 
I suppose you could say that about electrical goods as well. Electrical goods now are actually cheaper than they were 20 years ago, which is also weird, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And uh, but I think I think that's just a, and I think that's again just a fascinating thing um, about about all of this. Um, and uh, uh, again, with the, with the interviews, just sticking on that topic. Um, the final question I have about the interviews is: uh, Did anyone? Uh, try to remain in character like so obviously um i mean I, I assume you spoke to them a little bit before you started uh recording on record um the, the conversations um but was any did anyone try to kayfabe you and and stay in character before during and after the interview or or have you been kind of lucky enough to uh, to just kind of uh well I'm, it's a wrestling business so tell me about <laughs> people who uh tried to kayfabe you yeah, oh yeah, that that did happen. I remember Greg Lambert did an interview with um, uh, what would have been called at the time Bully Ray would have been called at the time, and I think that was in two thousand and thirteen, and he was in character with that. It was just the most Looney Tunes interview you'd ever read. I mean, it's two thousand thirteen. No one's kayfabing anymore. No one's been kayfabing for ten years or more, and he's like, Greg's there, like having this like argument with him while bully raising character that was just bizarre uh adam cole i think was actually could have been one of the last interviews i ever did for the magazine he uh and this would have been 2014 and we started the interview and he's fully in character and i just stopped him after the first question i said uh we this is he was not familiar with power slam and uh obviously and i said and i just explained to him uh, the content of the magazine and he just, he apologized, you know, what a gent, such a nice guy. He apologized, he said, ask me the question again. And he, and then he gave me the answer that would be the sort of answer that Power Slam readers would have liked. Um, it did definitely happen back in the 90s where it would be quite tricky to get people out of character. Um, but you usually could do it. Um, but also you got to remember up until 99, going back to what I was saying earlier, we weren't really coming out and saying, yes, this is a work. And yes, when people believe they cut themselves with razor blades and all these other things, we weren't coming out and writing that, you know, blatantly and flagrantly or however you want to describe it. So a lot of the interviews, if it was kind of a little bit in character, it sort of worked as long as it was presented in the right way. Um, in the first uh, Power Slam interviews, volume one, the first interviews book, I reprinted an interview I did with Steve Austin from late 1994. Uh, and now I should mention that on all in the interviews books, all the previously published interviews have got lengthy introductions, which are stories in themselves. Um, so all the interviews are set up in a given context of you know what was going on at the time, why they might have been responding in the way that they were. So a hell of a lot of work went into these interviews books. It isn't just a cut and paste job from Power Slam. Plus, of course, they all have new interviews, Power Slam interviews, volume one. Had five in-depth brand new interviews which had never been published, as did the Power Slam interviews, volume two. And one of those interviews was with the star of this podcast, Andy Quilden. The best one, if I may so, <laughs> say so myself. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um, so the Steve Austin interview from 1994... It was sort of, you, you, you got this sort of rhythm during an interview, and I would ask him certain questions that were designed for him to respond with a stunning Steve Austin response. You know, that was how you were, you were seeking a sort of in-character response. 
And but at other times you'd ask questions which were designed to get a response that was like an authentic what you really felt type of response. Uh, so that was a really good mix there of storyline and reality. And that's going back to 1994. And when you read it now, it does seem very dated. But it was, I think it was very entertaining and kind of does serve as like a time capsule of what was going on at the time. Um, you know, we, we were just talking about Brian Pillman and, you know, Ricky Steamboat and all these other people. And he would give you these sort of crazy responses. But then other times we were talking about his situation in WCW, which was pretty grim at the time. He didn't know where he stood. And he would give you like very real answers of how he really felt about his position in the company at the time so i mean the answer is sometimes people were kind of in character but there were times as well that you would encourage that but certainly after 99 very seldom did anyone give you an, an in-character interview and you would just sort of communicate to them respectfully that no that's not what really what we're looking for here and i think a lot of it is just how you present your questions if you as an interviewer and you present your questions in a certain way, then the wrestler will kind of know how to respond. Um, and if not, then you'll you'll maybe just have a little conversation with them. But it was all done very amicably. I mean, there were very few times when I did interviews with people and it wasn't very pleasant or amicable or respectful. There were a few. Brock Lesnar was quite curt, I've got to say. It was a good job I got a lot of questions together for that interview. <laughs> I could tell you that much because there was a lot of, he didn't want to provide details on a lot of things. So you just had to keep asking him question after question after question. I mean, I think Lesnar is quite famous for that. I don't think he likes doing interviews. And I think it would be very difficult to get an interview with him now because he's reached a point in his life and career where he doesn't have to do them. So I thought that was a, a, another real um, moment for the magazine to get that interview with him at that point in his career. And he was he, he, as reluctantly as he as he as reluctant as he was to talk, talk about certain things. If you pressed him, he would go into some detail. Uh, other times he would he wouldn't want to talk about it at all. Uh, and, you know, you'd use your emotional intelligence, which is very important in an interview situation. You've got to listen. You've got to work out what that person's saying or what they might want to say, will they give you more information? Do you not want to pursue that one? Because then they're going to clam up and not tell you anything. You've got to really judge it on a, on a, on a case by case basis. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it was, it was always interesting to me doing interviews with people because you never quite knew what you were going to get. Um, and sometimes people would really surprise you and, and be really witty. I mean, Sean Waltman, right? I mean, he was not renowned for his, interview prowess when he was x-pack one two three kid six-pack or whatever he just wasn't and i did two interviews with him i did one in 2007 which i thought was an amazing interview and then i did another one in 2013 i believe it was and both of those interviews i thought were i was i mean obviously i'm biased because i did them i will hopefully i'm not biased because hopefully when an interview is not so good i will concede that it's not so good but Certainly the, the interviews with Waltman were just so open and so candid and, you know, range from being hilarious to being really quite, you know, really quite, really quite sad. And you just, you just, um, you'd just be surprised by people certainly sometimes where you think, well, that person's not going to give us a particularly good interview. And then they just blow you away. 
by just disclosing so much. And I thought Waltman was an amazing interview subject. And I always found it kind of weird that he was never really that good at interviews when he was in a wrestling arena. I guess it's that difference between playing a character and, uh, and, and being yourself. I think that's a, that's a big, big, big difference and, and something that people um, often have to try and uh, to figure out how to, how to um, transfer your own persona across to, uh, you know, almost a larger than life version of your own persona across to your wrestling character. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm sure you both know people who backstage when the, you know, when the cameras or the fans aren't around are really like really witty or really, you know, bubbly or whatever, or people, you know, that, that are, are really interesting and you put Mike in front of the face and, and they find it very difficult to express themselves. I'm sure you both know people like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, something that uh, it, it's, it's just so interesting how, um, you know, although we are completely different genres in terms of your, you know, you, you obviously, um, in the publishing business and, and I'm in the promoting business. Uh, I think it's just so interesting the way there's such a crossover. I essentially, I know it's on the same topic level, but uh, you know, there's just such a crossover um, between the two, which, uh, which lays true um, regardless. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I did an interview just over a week ago with Dustin Runnels, Dustin Rhodes, uh, which I'm doing, which is going to be going on the inside the ropes, Patreon section. And, he was so candid and so open. I just couldn't believe it. We did like a big section on the, you know, the. Do you, I'm sure you both remember the story of the famous King of the Road match, uh, Uncensored 1995. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it was Dustin versus Blacktop Bully. It was Barry Darso, formerly Smash. Um, and both Dustin, uh, Barry Darso, and Mike Graham, the agent in charge, were fired after that match. Because they bladed in the match when they weren't supposed to. And uh, he was willing to talk about that openly. I mean, it's kind of weird, really. Even in 2019, I'm sure you both know this, some wrestlers don't like talking about the blade. It's still like the final frontier that they won't cross. <laughs> and he was, like, talking about it openly. And that was fascinating. And just talking about all sorts of other stuff with him. And I didn't... I mean, I knew Dustin was going to be all right because I've been to the Inside the Ropes show in Manchester where he'd done the, um, you know, spoken word tour. So I knew, and I'd met him backstage afterwards as well. So I knew the interview was going to be pretty good. But prior to going to the show, I didn't really have huge expectations, didn't really have high hopes for it. And he just far exceeded them. I was really pleased with that interview. I think that's a sign of when someone is so secure about themselves um, and what they've accomplished in their careers that they can, uh, you know, they can essentially just uh, relax um, and, and, and aren't afraid to tell the truth and tell a story like it, like it happened. Well, you're right. And, and the thing is, I always felt a responsibility to younger wrestlers not to try and trap them and get them to say things that may cause problems for them in future. When it was with wrestlers who were veterans, uh, usually they didn't have to be prodded. Usually they would just come out with this stuff without, you know, without any provocation at all. Uh, but when it was like a younger wrestler, and I know how the business is now, it is politically, and so if you say the wrong thing, it can it can trip you up later in your career. So. You know, I was always very conscious of that when I was doing interviews with younger wrestlers, that you would try and make sure that the mood of it was very respectful towards the business, 
so it wouldn't there wouldn't be any consequences for them later in their careers that was something i was always very mindful of and that was uh, that was in a day before twitter and, and stuff like that were around to to kind of over magnify uh, the smallest statements and <laughs> and blow it up in people's faces so yeah. um but i can i can imagine as well that um you know some of the interviews you you would have done if you know twitter was a thing um, when the when the interviews took place i can only imagine some of the trouble that some people would have got in <laughs> well let's face it wrestlers don't Wrestlers do a pretty good job of getting them getting themselves into trouble these days, don't they? Yeah, but I think I think with the microscope as well, though, oh, it's uh, it's yeah. one of those things. Um, Finley, just to let you know, uh, during that last question, Andy had to nip out because uh, he's got one of our uh, private training sessions at our wrestling school. So okay, um, so we'll finish off solo if that's okay with you. Um, absolutely, absolutely fine. Yeah, of course. Um, and I won't keep you for much longer, I promise. But this has been a, a wonderful interview so far. Um, so, so, so something that we talk about a lot in the, the podcast, and obviously something that I'm strongly invested in, is British wrestling. Um, now, I know uh, before we've spoken about this uh, privately, um, in terms of uh, British wrestling and the, the, the coverage that um, Power Slam gave to British wrestling, there was always a, um, and a, 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 this isn't designed to attack you in any way, shape or form, because I, think <laughs> I, I know what your answer is going to be, and I, I agree with it, but there's always been a, um, uh, 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 criticism for the coverage or lack thereof, uh, especially in the earlier days of Power Slam. Um, you know, what, what were your... Uh, and, and I know, again, it, you had some high-profile instance of covering British wrestling with UWA, UCW. Um, so what were your uh, thoughts on that? And, uh, and tell us a bit about some of your interactions with the British wrestling business. Um... Well, I mean, the thing is, if Power Sam were around now, and then it would be covering British wrestling in far more depth, because, as you know, really probably since about, I guess, 2012, 2013, it's been, it's much bigger than, it's as big now as it's been since, I mean, obviously not as big as it was in the 80s, because it didn't have the weekly ITV slot, but Apart from that, it's as big as it's ever been. You know, certainly in the era in the era since I've been covering pro wrestling, British wrestling is doing really well. There's lots of ways that people can watch it. Uh, but remember, back in the 90s and 2000s, how could people watch British wrestling? Really, only by going to the local show. Um, it there were times when it was on TV, but it was there was like obviously the live TV. Uh, was it the UWA that was on live TV? Yeah, in UWA, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was quite low budget and was there was a lot of problems there. I mean, there'd been other promotions that were on regional TV. I believe Hamlock was on Meridian, wasn't it? Was it yeah, the Transatlantic Trans Wrestling Challenge? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was down in the Kent area. So, I mean, what it was, it was a case of supply and demand, really. And you wouldn't really have a whole lot of people who would contact the magazine and say, why are you not covering British wrestling in more depth? People wanted to read about American wrestling and to a lesser extent, Japanese wrestling because they could watch them tapes or whatever. And certainly as the internet uh, became a thing that everyone had and really when broadband became something that was just not, uh, was, was just standard, which I guess was probably about the mid two thousands, I guess when most people had broadband or broadband became a thing that people uh, could access quite cheaply and was good quality, which was obviously led to the explosion of YouTube and Daily Motion and all the streaming services. So you've got to put it in the context of the time. 
if you're cover if you've got a British wrestling promotion that people can't really watch, then it's difficult really to justify covering it in any great depth. I mean, is that a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. Because and again, it's like it's very much like you said about um, some of the earlier shows that you covered, for example, the ECW shows and stuff from Japan um, that obviously um, with those shows, um, people were able to get hold of those shows via tape traders. Um, yeah. And and therefore and, and often that spurned on. So you'd write a review of something. And then I re actually remember the night the line was crossed, um, your review of that. And I actually wound up getting a, that that videotape from a tape trader off the back of that review um yeah. and i remember one of my distinct memories of that show when i when i watched it was um how um just the bad quality of a show um so like the, the bad, bad tape quality of a show because again i i don't want to speak as if i'm uh you know um uh I, I don't know the words i'm looking for but i don't want to you know dumb that dumb this down at all but like in back in those days the, the quality of the vhs tape really wasn't that great and with a tape trader no. you're going down generations so like yeah. uh, it depends what so if someone's got the third generation of a tape and then i'm getting a copy of that the third generation i've got the fourth generation and it's uh, down down in quality so the, the audio was crackly the quality was kind of shaky and the color was kind of off it's, it seems almost uh, amazing even thinking about that and i always say to people at our wrestling school when we uh when when we're trying to um, convey emotion in matches. You've got to imagine pressing pause on a on a um, videotape. Um, and I said, like back in the day, you could get away with. And this is kind of in my, just my kind of little analogy of the way I think wrestling's changed. Because um, I think I believe wrestling's a lot more layered now than it's ever been. Um, and the, the 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 standard of wrestling is so much higher. Um, and I always say that back in the day, you could press pause on a videotape. Um, and if you press pause, like you can't make out what's going on the screen. The, the quality is bouncing up and down. It's all over the place. Um, but if you press, but nowadays you've got the WWE network, you've got the streaming services. You press pause, and the image is crystal clear, and uh, and that's why you can't get away with any split second of being out of character per se. Um, and uh, and and so going back to my point, um, a very long way of making it. I'm sorry. Um, is um, that in those days? So I I watched that night the line was crossed on the um, on a VHS tape, which was very bad quality. Now. If you wanted to watch a British wrestling show, the only way, the only VHS tapes which were even in existence of British wrestling were very bad. Um, essentially, like the fan cams you used to get of ECW shows, yeah. but often just like a, a camera on a tripod. Um, again, even worse quality than that. You know, the night the line was crossed. Um, but you have no commentary. It'd be one camera angle. Um, it just wouldn't be good quality at all. So you know. Um, so even if you were saying, "Come and watch this show," if you could manage to magic up a copy of a show, you know, it, it, it wouldn't sustain your attention at all. That's right. I mean, I know it was all relative at the time. You're saying, "Well, that nightline was crossed and it being poor quality," and of course it was. But you were willing to tolerate that. Oh, absolutely. Then. Yeah. H HD was like hadn't been invented. I mean, we didn't DVD didn't even exist. It was VHS, wasn't it? DVD didn't come along until was it like late ninety eight or early ninety nine? So I mean, we didn't we weren't even at that point yet. So it was all relative to the time. But my way of looking at it was, how do you sell this British wrestling to a WWF fan? And that was my mentality when you would be writing about another promotion in Power Slam. You'd be saying, so, right, okay, I'm trying to sell this. I'm trying to make the person who only watches 
Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, um, Steve Austin, or you know Owen Hart, whomever. I'm trying to sell this to to the readership as something that they absolutely have to watch, and they've got to make the effort. They've got to spend money, which is like something that's alien to people now, isn't it? They've got to spend money. They've got to send off for it. They've got to wait for it. It's not instant. <laughs> it's not like yeah. now. Is it? Um, and it's, so it's got to be something that's pretty good, that's got a lot of merit. And I'm not saying that a lot of those British wrestlers back in the day or back in the 90s and early 2000s didn't have talent, because, of course, they did. But it, it was the whole presentation of it was strictly small time. As you say, it didn't have commentary, and it was tricky, really, to sell it to people. Also, the lighting, you'll know about this, Andy, the lighting back then in the venues was not good. So your photos would, and this was kind of pre-digital, really, or when digital wasn't that, wasn't really as good as it is now. So your photos wouldn't look that good either in the magazine. And the whole thing was just, it was that kind of a tough sell. I mean, we did cover British wrestling to an extent, but we didn't cover it as as much as some people wanted. And we certainly didn't cover it as much as other magazines covered it. But I will say uh, a couple of those magazines, certainly in the early 2000s uh, period, which covered British wrestling in a lot more depth than Power Slam, did not sell well. And those magazines ceased publication. So it becomes a business decision as well. And I'm sure some people think, well, you're a mercenary, you're only in it for yourself. It's like, well... No, not really. I mean, it for the preservation of a business that quite a few people were dependent upon for income. Uh, and obviously, I was dependent upon for an income. So you were trying to strike the balance where you were covering a lot of stuff that would preserve your sales. Um, and certainly towards the end, when sales started going down, it became even more difficult because you were you were trying to cover the stuff that was going to sell. Um, and your sales are going down, your costs are going up and everything. It became very difficult at the end running the magazine to, to make it successful. Um, and that was very frustrating because you really, I really felt like at the end, like, uh, you know, everything was settled really well. We had a good system with the printers, good system with the originators, good system with the photos. And uh, we had a good team of people working on the publication. Um, and I felt like we were putting out some good, you know, good product and everything, but your sales were declining because the magazine business was in decline and various other reasons as well, technology, technology related. That's been the theme of this podcast. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? Technology. And how technology changes things, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, at least definitely when it comes to, to magazines. So I accept that I understand why people were miffed and lots of people were not happy with Power Slam back then. Lots of people were really angry about it because we weren't covering it as much as they felt that we should have done. Um, I think certainly towards the end, 2012, 2013, 2014, we covered it more. Uh, if the magazine were around today, we'd be dedicating far more coverage to it for the reasons I've explained, because it's more accessible for the readers. Uh, and there's a lot more really good stuff out there as well. The production's much better. You'd be making all these recommendations of things. There'd be far more British talent in the PS50 if we were still running that. So things would be different. The coverage would be much greater in the magazine if the magazine was going today. Uh, and that really, I, I've got to say one of my regrets really, I certainly in the last sort of year to six months, we should have given British wrestling more coverage than we did. 
Um, we should have done that in the last year to six months because there was a boom. You know, it was taking off. A lot of companies were doing much better, um, and we should have definitely given it more coverage towards the end. So I absolutely um, accept that that was something I should have done. Yeah, and I, I like I believe it's a it's a thankless task. I, I like I I know firsthand that the more success you have, um, the the more uh, haters you set you tend to have. Um, but I think that it's it's almost like, and again, I, I say this from a position of being within British wrestling, um, and, and I was around at the time when, you know, I, I was with the original incarnation of FWA, which of course was one of the, you know, they were the first people to start trying to push it to the forefront in terms of, um, you know, media coverage. Um, and I know that obviously you work alongside Alex Shane quite a bit these days, um, but um, I'm sure he was one of the most vocal people towards you um, in trying to get you to... to Put more coverage in um but i yeah. but i believe there was there's always been an in it's just typical of british wrestling and i'm not i'm not barring myself from this category at all but i think there's always been an air of self-entitlement um for from british wrestling um whereby you know like you're a british magazine so you should be covering british wrestling you know yeah. when the reality of the situation is you're trying to earn a living the same way they're trying to earn a living and oh. and and a lot of these promotions as well um you know will present like back in the day so fwa may be the exception in terms of they were trying to do something different but it's a chicken and an egg situation really um in terms of you know what comes first um in terms of the media coverage and versus success um but they needed to to i think prove more consistently that they could um you know get generate interest um because i think they, it was too inconsistent with stop start stop start in order yeah. for you to cover it as a legitimate promotion like they used to take three month breaks every year you know like it's very hard to cover something like that consistently um so um so i wouldn't put any any blame on your doorstep whatsoever and in many ways i think that yes if you were still around today you should be covering british wrestling but to me that's because british wrestling has risen to our to a higher level you know i think um you know some of the other shows were going on around the time because i used to go to uk wrestling shows all, all the time and i used to speak it um i you know i used to um uh to, to see them more when I used to hear about, oh, this should be being covered and whatever. They were heavily influenced by American wrestling. They were using American wrestling to try and sell their products. So how can yeah. they look at yourself and be angry at you for trying to use American wrestling to sell your product? Exactly. You know? um, so, uh, so, yeah. And there were some good British, wrestler, British wrestlers, but again, you have to believe what you're promoting. And I think that um, so, it, some of the shows, if you were to review them, if you gave WrestleMania 9 a bad review, I'd hate to think what you'd say about, you know, some of the shows that I went to see as a child. <laughs> well, that, that was always a tricky thing as well, is that you would do a review of a British wrestling show and how did you, how did you approach it? Did you view everything the same way? So was the measuring stick the same for all promotions or was it not? And it couldn't be in terms of production. And it couldn't be in terms of venue size or audience size or all these other things. But that was always a tricky one as well. And there was a few times where we covered British wrestling and the people who were involved were not happy with the review. And they let us know about it. And you think to yourself, wow, I'm really taking a lot of heat for this. Yeah. Uh, the show wasn't very good. How can you try and pretend that it was? Um, it's like you're not really something that I absolutely need. You, the, the readership isn't crying out 
for us to cover this promotion on a regular basis. Um, why am I doing this? You know, Absolutely. what's my to do this? And I definitely understood their point of view. And they sort of, the attitude was, well, if you're not praising our promotion, then you're going to deter people potentially from buying tickets to come and see it. And I absolutely get that. But going back to what I was saying earlier, Andy, was you've got to try and preserve your credibility in wrestling. You've got to try and avoid bias. And I know that is actually impossible because you're always going to be a little bit biased about someone or something. You're going to have your preferences. You're going to have your favourites. It's just inevitable. But, I mean, I tried really hard. We all tried really hard to avoid that bias. Um, And if it gets to the point there where... (laughs) You know, you're just like, they're almost expecting you to come along and put them over when they don't deserve it. And you're like, well, why would I do that? Why, you know, I've spent a long time trying to make this magazine mean something. I'm trying a long time trying to build it into something that's got some credibility and that people can can believe in. And, you know, when we write and, we write and say that something's good or something's average or something's dreadful, you hope that people will believe it and that it's written honestly and not for a, you know, ulterior motive or because someone's got an agenda or you're doing it to appease someone. So that was a tricky one as well. So I absolutely understand. I understand why people were not pleased that Power Slam didn't cover British wrestling in more depth. I absolutely understand it. You know, I'm not, I'm not faulting them for thinking the way they did, but it's, it's got to, you know, it had to work for Power Slam. It absolutely had to. And if it didn't, then how could I do it? Um, it was a business at the end of the day. And, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we paid really well. We paid the writers really well. We paid the photographers really well. Um, you know, when that magazine folded, everyone was paid for, you know, everything that they contributed. Um, and that was because the magazine was successful and could afford to pay people very well. So that's one of the things that I'm very proud of, um, that I did that. And, um, you know, there are certain people, I think most people, there are certain people who work for Power Slam that probably, you know, that work, that you went, they've probably got grudges against me for various reasons. But I like to believe that anyone would say, you know what, regardless of what I think about Finley Martin as, a, as an editor, you know, he was an ogre as an editor, and I absolutely accept that I was, he always paid well. Uh, and you know that's what I did, and the reason I did that was because the magazine could afford to do it, and it could afford to do it because it sold well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guess that we should wrap up. I've kept, I've kept you for a very long time. I really appreciate your time. Um, but um, just uh, you know, again, like we've said, Power Slam leaves behind a, a massive legacy, and for people like myself and Andy, especially who grew up. Um, you know, as huge wrestling fans within the United Kingdom. So it's kind of, it has left an absolutely massive legacy behind. Um, so I guess, um, you know, and we've spoken about um, the, you know, the, the way technology has um, uh, has changed over time. Um, so I, I guess, I, I guess there's a few questions. I, I, you know, I don't want to keep you for too long, but um, I guess there's a few questions just to close up, um, which would be the first thing I'd like to ask you is, um, what what if there is a legacy for Power Slam Wrestling Magazine? What would you like it to be? How would you like it to be remembered? What is Power Slam's legacy? Um, I think it was a magazine that that was that ended up being. I think it ended up being something that was. I think it was a magazine that 
that made wrestling matter. Um, and I think when you read Power Slam, if we were covering it and we were praising it, then you knew it was something that was worth watching. And you knew it was something that was worth your attention and that you should seek it out. Um, I think it was... I think I'm, I'm proud of what I achieved with it. There were, there, were, there were good issues and there were mediocre issues and there were, sadly, some, some poor issues as well. But I think overall, our, our average, I think we would put out more good issues than bad issues. And I don't feel like I ever phoned it in on a single issue, even though there were certain issues you look back and thought, oh, my God, look at the state of that. And it was never because I didn't try to make it as good as it could be. And that was my goal from the start, was to make every issue better than the last. Never Didn't happen all the time. I don't know how often it happened. But that was what I was striving to do. I was trying to make this into a magazine that that people could view as like, you know, I always I always thought about, about like film and music magazines and things like that. And you look at me and think, wow, this magazine's, it's got some prestige. It's got some respect. You know, it's, it's really striving to, to do something that really matters. And that's what I tried to do with Power Slam. Um, and that was my goal with every issue, was to make that issue something that you could look at it and say, you know what, that's a pretty damn good issue of the magazine. Uh, that was well done, and we got it right. And, and we're trying to make the wrestling... I think also as well, another thing I really wanted to do with, with Power Slam was... A lot of wrestling magazines, certainly back in the, the 80s and the early 90s during the original craze in the UK, a lot of the magazines didn't really treat wrestling fans with very much respect in terms of their intellectual capacity. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Andy? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it, <laughs> and, and it was a lot more pictures and words as well in, in many of the other magazines. And it would just be like, they would sort of be written almost for kids. And I think a lot of them were. Uh, and some of them were very successful with that model. And I wanted to do something different with Power Slam. And I wanted it to be something that people who are in the late teens and the 20s and adult, 30s adults could read and could really look forward to. And they could say, you know what, that was a really good article and that was written for me as an adult. That didn't treat me as in any way inferior or treat me like a child or speak to me like, you know, it was not in any way condescending that I'm a wrestling fan. You know, my whole goal was that people who are wrestling fans should be, should be proud to be wrestling fans. Cause to me, wrestling is such an amazing form of entertainment. And I don't feel like it gets anywhere near enough respect. It gets more respect now than it used to, but I still don't feel like it gets anywhere near enough respect from people who aren't fans and certainly from the mainstream. It's still looked down upon. I don't think it's as bad as it was. Uh, so I was always, you know, really trying with Palestine to make people feel like this was a safe place they could go and that someone might mock them for being a wrestling fan, but Palestine was never going to do that. And Palestine was going to make them proud to be a wrestling fan um that was what i really set out to do and 
people can decide for themselves whether I achieved it. Wow, it's, it's amazing you say that because I like I genuinely say that about why I got involved into promoting wrestling shows as well to for, for so people could be proud to to be wrestling fans and in particular to be British wrestling fans and that was based upon my experiences of going to to British wrestling shows and pretending it was WWF but knowing it wasn't and knowing it was nowhere near that level. Um, yeah. But then um, I wanted to be able to create an environment where you could take your mates to and say, yep, this is what I do at the weekends. This is what I enjoy. Um, and, and you could be a proud proud of that and not ashamed of it. So um, it's, it's great to, to see, you know, and perhaps some of those principles came from reading Power Slam magazine, you know, because, uh, again, I think that very much that was something that I looked forward to absolutely each and every month. Um, and to me, it seemed like, a, like you say, really, as it was getting towards, uh, like, uh, it, to, like, to me, I loved every issue. I read it cover to cover um, uh, multiple times. Um, but uh, I think that it's almost hard that as as you kind of get fully in your rhythm, you know exactly what you're doing, um, that it, it's almost time for it to come to an end. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, what, what were your thoughts on... Uh, because I, I seem to recall from, from a book, the numbers, although obviously the numbers were nowhere near what they were, it wasn't like Power Slam fizzled out and died. It was still, no. uh, it was still very much alive. And I would probably predict in terms of... Um, in terms of readership, it'd probably still be up there. Because obviously, magazine itself is a, I guess, a dying genre. So I guess in terms yeah. of um, in terms of readership, it's it wasn't really doing that badly. I mean, what what would you say? Uh, what were your your kind of thoughts on kind of bringing it to the end? Why why did you reach the decision to to do that? Yeah. Uh, oh, just another thing as well about why I strove to do with Power Sam. You always try to make you just saying that I read every issue. You always tried to make wrestling fans think. You always wanted to make readers think. So you try and create an article that would have questions in it and that would enable them to fantasy book or would this happen or might this happen? I always feel like if you're doing an article that's, that people leave the article and it makes them think, you, you, you have succeeded. And that was something I always tried to do. It's something I try to do now with WrestleTalk magazine. And I write for Inside the Ropes' uh, Patreon section. I actually do a monthly What's Going Down feature for that, Andy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And I really, I put like a lot of work into these features. And it's sort of, it's it's interesting to me now because I have more time when I was running Power Slam because you had to, there was a lot of work to do on it. Sometimes you think, oh, I really would have liked another hour on that. You know, I could have fine-tuned it. And other times you didn't really need it. You're just thinking, oh, well. It's like I'm sure like when you're running a show, you think, oh, if only we had another week to promote it. We could have done this. We could have done that. <laughs> but you think to yourself, well, would we? Would it really have been any better? Maybe it wouldn't be. Maybe it wouldn't have been any better. And you just always want more, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was something that, that I always tried to do to do with the magazine. But in terms of sales, yeah, you look at what it was selling at the end. And certainly now you think, oh, actually, those sales weren't too bad. Uh, not, you know, nowhere near what it was selling during its uh, glory days, which were really sort of 2002 to 2008 was its, was its glory days as a publication. A lot of people are surprised by that. Like, oh, well, surely it's glory days were in the 90s before the internet came along. No, actually, it's best years financially were 2006 to 2008, which was when most people had broadband. So, um, you know, that was when the magazine was do, doing, in terms of sales, in terms of business, in terms of the whole package, that was when it was at its peak. Um, so, I mean, 
in terms of closing it, I knew it had to be done because it didn't matter what you did. You would occasionally have little spikes. Like I always remember the summer of punk issue two or five, I believe it was. Uh, and we covered the uh, Money in the Bank event that year. And that was right after CM Punk had done his famous promo. And they were doing all the work shoot stuff, him and Vince. Um, and there was uh, that was like a, a really provoked a huge amount of interest from people who'd been become Laps fans. And I remember sales going up, I don't know by how many, but enough that it was significant for issue two or five. Because people were gripped by that storyline. And it was almost going back to the 90s. Is it real or is it not real? We want to see, we, we, can we, we can, and at that point, you could suspend your disbelief, at least for a few weeks. So we really benefited from that. And I remember then getting the sales for the following issue, which would have been two or six. And that wasn't a bad issue, but we'd had better issues, but it wasn't such a great issue. Admit, well, it was, it was decent. It was a decent issue. And sales went right back down to the level they were prior to two or five. And uh, it was at that point that I kind of realized that I was fighting a losing battle and that no matter what I did, because the business was kind of, we also just entered the, the part-timer era. That was, I always feel that the, the time we entered that was when um, The Rock returned in 2011. And so much of it then revolved around the Brock Lesnar's and The Rock coming back and these other people. And it became very difficult to really do stories on talents because you knew that when they faced the part-timer, they were going to be treated as mid-carders and the part-timer would, you know, swan in and be treated as a star and usually win. So the whole business kind of was changing in terms, which meant that you as the way you were running the magazine had to change as well. So we was kind of running like these covers with a rock on the front cover. And I'm like, can I really run a, another rock cover? And it's like, well, he's the star right now of the pushing. So that's what you always did. But then he's only there for like, you know, two weeks. And then he'll have like one match. They'll disappear for three months or six months. Um, and then the stars who you previously would have featured as cover stars weren't really viewed as the stars of the same magnitude as the rock. So we're in this different sort of time for the business, and that made it more that made it much trickier as a magazine creator um, to do your stories on stars. I mean, I always really used to like doing features on on performers and covering their careers in their entirety, or the careers of the last year or two years, or this is how they came to be in the position they're in now. And wow, doesn't the future look bright for them? And oftentimes you couldn't write that because you knew as soon as the they encountered Brock Lesnar or this part-timer that he, they would just end up doing the job. So the whole mood, I think, had changed the business as well. Um, I'm sorry if that was a bit garbled there, but things definitely changed in 2011 and it became much more difficult to really put the magazine together. Uh, as far as sales going down, after that issue 205, issue 206 situation, I just knew I was, I knew I was fighting a losing battle, basically. And I can't tell you how dispiriting it was when you put together what you knew was a really good issue or, as, or an issue that was as good as it could have been. And then you'd look at the sales and your sales would go down. And you'd like, and then you'd sit there with your magazine distributors who'd say to you, well, all magazine sales are down. So compared to this magazine, I'm not talking about wrestling magazine here, I'm talking about general magazines, compared to this magazine, 
your sales are not doing too bad. And you say, well, yeah, but they're still in decline. And meanwhile, the magazine news trade started increasing its prices. Um, once upon a time, as I mentioned earlier in the Superstars of Wrestling, you could put a magazine in the shops. It didn't cost you anything. You'd be on sale or return. You'd get 51% of your cover price or 50% of your cover price or whatever it was. You'd only be paid for the issues that sold. The other issues would be wasted. But your chances of making it, it was a lot easier to make money out of it. By the 2010s, because the magazine industry is in not free fall, but not far off, so fewer magazines are being sold. Um, so the news trade's making less money. What they started doing was then charging you to stock your title. And I remember going and having you know, my VAT return done. And uh, my accountant's there. And he said, well, here's your quarter. Uh, this, is, uh, this is how you've done in the last quarter, Finley. I'm like, well, that's not too bad, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and then he added all the, all the magazine, uh, all the news trade charges like WH Smith's and you know, the supermarkets and mines and all these other companies that would start your tail. Then you'd add all these price charges on and you're like, oh, like <laughs> yeah. any profit. And you and when you combine that with declining sales, it just became it just became unsustainable. Um and also it was having quite a bad effect on me as a person because you really wanted to, and I feel like towards the, to, to the very end, uh, the standards, the standards didn't drop, but I was always very fearful that they would. Um, and I knew that if I continued doing the magazine, when I knew that sales were never going to imp improve, it was like, how do you maintain your enthusiasm for this thing after this thing that you've been doing for 22 and a half years, when you know it cannot improve? So all you're left with is a situation where what do you do? You've got to cut your costs and you just cost cutting left and right just to try and keep this thing afloat. And to me, I just thought, well, why would I need to do that? Why would I, what am I really going to benefit from that? Uh, how am I going to benefit for it? And I felt sorry for all the people who were writing for the magazine because even to the end, Andy, I was still pay, paying really well. Um, and I felt for all the, for all the guys that were no longer able to supply photos to the magazine, no longer were able to submit articles to the, the magazine. Uh, I rang them all up on one day. It was a Sunday. I was on the phone uh, for about 13 hours that day, speaking to people <laughs> to ring them all up. I wanted to do it over the phone rather than sending them some bullshit email. Yeah. You know, it's not like I needed to, I needed to ring them all up. Thankfully, by then, phone, phone charges are a lot lower. <laughs> yeah, an unlimited <laughs> contract. So. <laughs> so I rang everyone up and told them all, and everyone sort of, everyone really understood. And um, I mean, they were miffed, of course. They were not happy about it. But they understood why I was doing what I was doing, or at least I hope they did. Um, and um, I don't blame them if some of them still got hard feelings about it. I, I absolutely understand that, because Power Slam was a good gig for them. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it was very difficult to find something to replace that. So, I mean, if there's people out there that, that, uh, you know, are still holding a grudge about it, well, I can kind of understand it. Uh, but it just, it just, I just felt like I needed to wrap it up while it was still relevant, while I still felt like I was enthusiastic about producing it. Um, and I just felt like 20 years to the month. First issue went out July 94. Last issue, issue 237, went out July of 2014. 
I thought 20 years was a great way to end it. Um, I mean, there was ways I could have kept the magazine going. I could have, as I said, I could have done a lot of cost cutting. There was lots of things that could have been done to maintain the business. But I don't think anyone would have been really happy to see Power Slam become this low budget publication. And I think it would have um, accelerated the decline of sales. So then you're effectively in a race to the bottom where each month your sales are declining. Probably people are all pissed off because the magazine doesn't look as good as it used to do. Maybe some photographers won't do that show for you because the money isn't, there's not as much money in it for them. So the standard, you know, standard of your coverage is going to decrease and everything would just then feed everything else. And you'd be left in a situation where the magazine at the end would not be remembered as fondly as I like to believe that it is. Um, and also, I, I had an idea in my head of getting into the book business. You know, I did the pro wrestling through the Power Slam years. That came out in September 2015. Then put Power Slam Interviews Volume 1. That was 2016. Power Slam Interviews Volume 2, 2017. So I had my little wobble in 17. That's it. I'm through with the wrestling business. That's it. I'm retired. What the hell was I thinking there? That was like a Terry Funk retirement. Didn't last for long. So, uh, you know, but it was, um, it was, it was, it was an important thing for me to go through um, because I was sort of kind of down on the business in 2017 and just detaching myself from it. It was only probably about five or six weeks that I stopped. That's the, I stopped watching wrestling and maybe five or six weeks. I just didn't watch it. And I know some people probably find this quite amusing. Like, Oh, it's only five or six weeks, but it just felt weird not having wrestling in my life. And I just had this sort of burning desire to just start writing about wrestling again and, and doing podcasts again. And, and I, I, you look, I don't regret the fact that I did what I did. And in, in my third book, I actually announced for retirement on the last page and because it's an ebook, I can go in and change that if I want to. But it's not there. But it's still in there. And I think, well, that's the way I was feeling at the time. Um, I'm going to do another wrestling book, hopefully this year. It's been a busy year for various reasons that I won't bore people with. Uh, I'm hoping to do another wrestling book this year. If it's not this year, it'll certainly be early 2020. Um, and, you know, I'm writing for WrestleTalk magazine, which I really enjoy. Doing stuff for Inside the Ropes, podcasting, written pieces. Uh, you know, I'm really touched that you uh, got in touch for us to do a podcast today. So I really enjoyed doing this. And, you know, I just feel like it feels like 1990, I don't know, 1990, late 1997 again. You know, when I when I, when issue when I got the sales figures for issue 40 in and you're like, wow, this this feels like it's going somewhere. You know, financially, I'm not in that position anymore, sadly. But I'm getting, you know, I do get a lot out of covering pro wrestling. And I feel like after 27 years or whatever it is, I've been doing this now. Uh, I do feel like it's something I can do fairly well. And uh, I feel like I've, and, you know, I love the, the, the art of podcasting. I've only been doing this for maybe three and a half years. And I just feel like, I feel like I've got so much more to learn and, and I could be so much better than podcasting than I am today. So I'm really, you know, invigorated by that and enjoy, and I really enjoy writing, I really enjoy writing about wrestling still. So, you know, it feels that retirement two years ago, you might think, well, you're full of it, Finley. And Hey, if you want to think that that's fair enough, but I don't regret that for a moment. And I'm, you know, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to be, fully on board with pro wrestling again. Absolutely. I think sometimes you just need to be able to take that step back, don't you, to, to kind of really appreciate, um, you know, what it is you fell in love with. Um, I think that's my, again, 
my biggest uh, takeaway from from my wrestling life. Um, anyone who sees my Twitter account will see it's got a picture of me at the, the top as a child playing with a WWF action figures, um, right. and it says something like "Always follow your dreams," something along those lines. Now, the reason why that picture's there, obviously I was an adorable child, um, but the reason that picture's actually there is because um, any time I feel kind of um, disheartened with the wrestling business, which is probably a lot more often than you'd think, um, I kind of go back and I look at that picture um, and I think to myself, you know, like, with this child playing with the wrestling toys, if he knew that what you'd wind up doing and who you'd wind up meeting and the crazy characters you'd meet, the conversations you'd have and the shows you'd get to see live and in person, you know, how made up would this young child be you know and it kind of gives you that opportunity to step back and reflect um and sometimes you just need that time because it's very encapsulating isn't it when you're in that bubble um and uh, and i'm very happy to hear that kind of uh, you know you 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 you're happy being unretired and i hope it stays that way um <laughs> and uh, and i think probably are you enjoying the less responsibility more creativity is that a good um one? i suppose so. i just will, would also like to say andy that i'm qualified for nothing else <laughs> and, and as you said you're not really qualified for the being a, a writer either are you, you just made it up as you went along <laughs> that's right yeah. there's no qualifications quite right um yeah i mean it's yeah i'm happy to be uh, just contributing to, to the magazine uh you know james dixon runs it he does a really good job i'm really happy to be on the team there uh, i was really touched when the uh when they got in touch about you know wanting me to participate in the magazine and there's, there's obviously a lot of um uh, similarities between wrestle talk and power slam as well that must be a kind of uh, you know a huge honor for yourself to, to to realize that obviously that format was so well thought of that you know that they've kind of brought that back in that magazine well just i'm sure it's just a coincidence <laughs> <laughs> no absolutely yeah yeah of course yeah i mean it's i mean it's um i'm just happy to be contributing to it and and you know they say to me just do it as if you were if you were writing it for power slam so that's how i do it so i'm actually writing uh raw even though it seems like a while ago now the, the event took place i'm writing raw rumble 2019 up at the moment so uh so i'll be getting on with that right after we finish this podcast again so i'm really enjoying doing that review i always watch the events twice and when it comes I to feel a, for you when it comes to event the length of the raw rumble that's a big 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 dedication that's taking up a big chunk of your week so um so yeah, I'm 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 just really happy to be involved, and um, um, you know these people are all like younger than me, uh, and they're all sort of real go getters and are really hungry and stuff, and that's really empowering for me. And uh, I feel, you know, I feel it's it, to me it's like I really enjoy being involved with people who are really enthusiastic, and that sort of rubs off in you, doesn't it? And they're, you know, they 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 want to do all these things and they want to achieve all these things and and I'm happy to be I'm happy to be a part of that. But as you say, not the one driving it, but being involved in it on some level. Uh, and yeah, long may it continue. Brilliant. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful point to end the interview. I want to say thank you so much for for giving me your time today. It's uh, and Andy as well on on his behalf. Um, it's been absolutely great and. Uh, and I, and I want to say thank you as well for providing me with so many happy memories as a child because uh, Power Slam really was. Uh, and again, I, I don't really think people, any any new wrestling fans, I don't really think um, will be able to um, really get this uh, feeling. But Power Slam really was the highlight of my entire 
month um and to the extent that you know you'd be checking the cover because on the on the inside cover of power slam or on the page number three i think is always you'd always say when you're um when the next issue's coming out as well yes and like you'd, you'd read it cover to cover several times and then you'd you'd be kind of longing for the next issue to come out um and uh and look checking back at that date to make sure you've got the date right and i'd remember i'd always the day that it, the day that it came out i'd finish school and i'd sprint down to the the corner shop um and he'd have the, the copy like i say a day early um uh, <laughs> behind the counter for me fantastic um, and uh, and it was just an absolute pleasure being able to to read it and uh, and yeah so it's been a huge thrill being able to talk to you today and, and being able to get to know you over the past few years as well so so thank you very much for your time and uh, if you yeah. if you have anything at all you'd like to plug as well obviously we've spoken about the ebooks but feel free to plug them again and of course your wrestle talk stuff and inside the rope stuff oh no people i'm sure i've plugged it enough i spent you know it's well rest of talk magazine which people will be aware of uh obviously the books that i've mentioned i don't need to mention those again uh and we'll do the podcast each week with kenny mcintosh uh power slam podcast for inside the ropes please check that out i mentioned that i don't think um so yeah that's the, all the stuff that i've got going on as i said earlier i'm hoping to get another wrestling book out later this year i've got a couple of ideas uh, it's just getting the time to uh, to get stuck into it without the distractions uh, that uh, so often uh, thwart our progress as writers so yeah hopefully i'll uh, i'll be able to get another book out end of this year early 2020 2020 hard to believe it's, it's scary, 2020. It? yeah just absolutely scary so uh, but yeah thanks very much for buying the magazine Andy. and thanks to everyone listening to this whoever bought the magazine or formed the hotline thank you very much you were the people that you know certainly the hotline callers were people that kept power sam going and superstars wrestling going during those dark days uh and thanks yeah thanks very much for supporting the magazine and if you buy one of my books i really hope you enjoyed them i hope you recommend them to other people uh and yeah thanks for listening to this podcast i'm sure i'll be back again someday i would love to have you back anytime yeah yeah well, well let's let's sort something out again down in a few months time and we'll talk about general wrestling you yeah, know let's be, do that that'd be, that'd be brilliant great well thanks very much for joining us finley and uh we'll speak to you again very soon right. thanks a lot so there we go an absolutely fascinating interview so thank you again to finley for um for your time um and uh, and right now I've been joined back by Andy Boy Simmons. Thank you very, very thank you very so much. Yeah, that'll do. Thank you thank very you. much to Finley Martin for his time. No, though. thank you for your time, Andy, because obviously it wasn't worth enough to you that you had to run out in the middle of that interview. I, yeah, I know. I had uh, some personal training to do, didn't I? So booked in. You can't let the people down. No, you're right. Um, but you can thank me as well if you want. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Keeping it going. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. My favourite song at the moment, You're Welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Very good. I know the rap. Yeah. Do you want me to do it? No. Uh, okay. Must. No problem. Don't worry. Go on. I could have done I the bet rap. You, I bet you can't do it without singing along to the song. Um, there you go. Yes, I could. Thank do you. Do you want me to do it? Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to do it? Yeah, go on. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm a bit nervous now. I know. We're going to have to edit it out if I can't get it right. No, you can't. Okay. You ready? Go on. Kids, honestly, I could go on and on. I could explain every natural phenomenon. The grass, the sea, the ground. That was just Maui just messing around. I killed an eel and buried its guts. Sprouted a tree and you got coconuts. What's the lesson? What's the takeaway? Don't mess with Maui while he's on the breakaway. I have a tapestry here on my skin. It's a map of a victory that I win. 
Look where I've been. I make everything happen. Look at that mean little Maui. Just tippity tapping. Ha, ha, ha. You're welcome. Ah, well done. All right, fair play. <laughs> I thought you thought there's no way you'll get that right. Well Mate, done. you're looking at the man who knows the first verse that we're not getting <laughs> anymore. That wasn't a good rendition, but you know you got no, the words right. No, but I could have done it a no, bit more. No. I could have done it a bit more yeah. in character if we'd gone from the start. Yeah. You know. Well, I did try. Go on. Thank you. Ah. <laughs> 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 <sighs> Anyway, Moana, classic film. Um, <laughs> do you know what the funny thing is? I've never even watched the film. Have you not? No, but do you know how I know that song? Because your son. Yeah. yeah. So we, uh, what we do is we play uh, kids' songs on... Yeah. Alexa, play some children's music. Yeah. That's just everyone's Alexa's now playing some children's music. Alexa, uh, stop. There you go. No worries. Hey, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, You're welcome. <laughs> sorry. Um so anyway yeah fantastic fantastic interview so thank you um and uh yeah i I, and oh what we should probably add as well which i wanted to add at the beginning of the episode um was i just wanted to let people know that last week's episode we put up was actually filmed over two weeks which is why there wasn't an episode everyone everyone knew well i know everyone knew but like i just wanted to make it clear that's why there wasn't an episode in the middle because you again ran away um and uh, uh, I don't think that's yes, it, that is true. Yeah, you left before the end. You were like, "I've got to go," and left. Oh, okay. And then um, during the recording of the podcast, and then we I've were going to th- record. I've got, I've got a we, thriving business of hours that I got so, to look after. So we so. were going to, we were going to, um, we were going to record the yeah. rest of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, I said, "Should we do it afterwards?" You were like, "What? No, I've got to go home." No, I wasn't if like that. Did, did. No, I wasn't. Yeah. No, you wanted to record it after training, which would be like after 10pm. I couldn't do Finish that. it at half nine. So. Yeah, by the time we get to the office. So we were going to record it later on anyway. in the week. And I lost my voice. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So I couldn't talk. So that was your fault, yeah. Well, that wasn't my fault, but I had no voice, so I couldn't talk. Okay. So I wonder if that's linked to the diarrhea we referred oh, to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so as a result, we had to wait and... Uh, record it we just recorded it on the Wednesday like we normally record the second yeah. half of the podcast so apologies if we repeated any stories in that no podcast. we didn't I, I listened to it okay yeah, yeah. cool but I just wanted to reassure everyone that we haven't given up we're still going to be very much regular um, so hopefully more regular than my poos or uh, <laughs> well once a day <laughs> yeah. well no I mean once like, a week well <laughs> wasn't a good analogy really is it? no no Okay, hopefully as regular as an episode of Monday Night Raw. Yeah. Because we know that will never go away. Yeah. And we've actually put in the time of an episode of Monday Night Raw today. Is it full three hours, so, is it? Uh, I think it's it's going to be close, isn't it? Because we spoke to Finley for a couple of hours. Yeah. Um, and, we and we probably did about half an hour before the interview. So, do you know what I mean? We're just the yeah. marathon men of podcasts these days. That's it. But you've got a bumper episode today to make up for the fact that we did miss a week, even though we said we would never miss a week again. Um, apologies for that. And we probably will miss a week again in the near future. <laughs> but we'll do our best not to um, and not to be flaky. Um, if there's any topics you'd like to hear us discuss, uh, yep. anything you'd like us to la- elaborate on, because I'm fully aware that many times we brush over certain things where you know you'd like to hear the full story so if there's any sure. ever anything like that don't just have to wait till the mailbag episodes just let us know yep. and if it's if it's something we feel we can um you know dedicate a full episode to then we'll we'll do it and if it's something that you know we think should wait for 
a Mailberg episode because we can just cover it in a couple of minutes and we'll wait to a Mailberg episode. But let us know always, and the best ways to let us know are via our respective Twitters. At Boy Simmons, B-O-Y-S-I-M-M-O-N-Z. And if you want to save the best tool last, at Aquildon, A-Q-U-I-L-D-A-N. Now, Andy, I'm going to tell you an honest story here. Go on. I went through my Twitter the other day. Yep. I spent about 15 minutes, probably 20 minutes, looking through my Twitter, just reading through my tweets. Yeah. I was amazed at how humorous I am oh, sometimes. I, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Good night. Check it out. Let me know. Give us some feedback. I'll speak to you in a while. Goodbye.